Hello, my name is Joe Fricky, and welcome to the 17th episode of Movie Changeup, where every week two people go head to head pitching reboots to movies. This week's episode, we have decided to do seven forgotten movies. However, these aren't just straight up reboots, since we've added a little twist, because every week there are also seven rules they must follow. One rule per movie, and you can't use a rule more than once. Now, to help me determine the winner in today's head-to-head matchup, I have the co-creator of this podcast as my assistant judge. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, everybody. I'm Johnny Dupe. It's good to be back on. Um, We got some interesting movies this week, ones I feel like most people won't remember, but a lot of them are near and dear to Joe and I's heart. So, you know, we wanted to give the competitors something to work with here, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do. Yeah, a lot of these movies are just movies that have been lost to time, you know, maybe a bigger version of that like a similar movie to that came out and was more popular or just you know just didn't hit the people at the right time at the box office and just no one really remembers the movie so it'll be interesting to see how this pans out uh now we have two competitors today who have faced off in the past uh the first competitor won this matchup last time and has been on this podcast since episode one why don't you introduce yourself uh, my name's bobby if you've been watching for a while then you should know me know me at this point I don't appreciate that, Tristan, but uh, um, yeah, this is going to be an interesting episode. I haven't competed in a while, and doing these uh, forgotten movies was definitely a challenge, so I'm looking forward to it. All right, and our second competitor has been on a little run, winning his last two matches. Why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm really hyped. I've been on a run for a couple of wins, and I'm, I'm sure this will be a win. I'm very confident in a lot of my pitches. There's a couple of movies here that I that I really like a lot, but there were a lot that I hadn't seen. So it was really interesting to look them up and watch a couple over the last week. So I'm really looking forward to what these pitches are going to be like. All right. All right. And uh, before we start, if you're listening to us uh, through a podcast app, go to YouTube and find this episode of Movie Change Up. Give us a thumbs up, a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you're watching us on YouTube, go to your favorite podcast app, download this episode, and give us a rating and review. If you think we gave you a five-star podcast, give us a five-star review. If you think we give you a four, three, two, or even a one-star podcast, help us out and still give us that five-star review. Now, if you're watching live, feel free to comment. Uh, if the comment's good, I'll throw it up on the screen, and uh, all four of us will probably respond to it. Now, the seven movies we're covering today are The Eyes Have It from 1927, The Golden Girls Movie from 2001, How the East Was Won from 1975, One Step at a Time from 1963, Red Rocket from 1996, The Roach from 2003, and Who's Your Daddy from 1994. And uh, Johnny, why don't you read us the rules? All right. So our rules today. uh, One, uh, you must resurrect an actor's career. Uh, uh, One must include Sean Connery. That can be Sean Connery at any age. RIP to the legend, the greatest James Bond of all time. Um. Uh, Alex Trebek has to have a cameo in one. Again, RIP to Alex Trebek, the greatest Jeopardy host in history. Um, One must include uh, past and present SNL cast members only. Um, It can be a mix and match, but it has to be SNL cast members. Uh, One must include a character made famous by Robin Williams. One must be centered around a holiday. And last but not least, one must have a tearjerker ending. I'm excited to see what our competitors do for all of those rules and movies today. All right. And uh, before the episode started, we figured out who would go first. And uh, Bobby won that challenge. So, Bobby, what uh, movie are we going with and who's going first? 
Uh, I'm going to go with the Golden Girls movie, uh, you know, the classic classic one based on the TV show. And I'm going to let Tristan pitch his first. All right. Uh, Golden Girls got a 66% on Rotten Tomatoes. In what could have been a great commercial success, this comedy directed by Donald Petrie uh, was the follow-up to his 2000 hit, Miss Congeniality. Unfortunately for him, it released the weekend after 9-11, so it was ignored at the box office. However, it was nominated for Best Comedy or Musical at the Golden Globes. It starred Rita Moreno as the strong-willed Dorothy, Meryl Streep as the small-town woman Rose, Nichelle Nichols as Blanche, the Southern Belle who works at an art museum, and Betty White as Sophia, Dorothy's mother-in-law. The film follows the meeting of the four iconic women as they all move in together and meet for the first time. So Tristan, what is your pitch for Golden Globes? Well, I, I do really like this movie. Uh, me and my family used to watch Golden Girls all the time when I was a kid, so we definitely had this on kind of rotation among the among the lineup of the show. It's not as good as a show, but I was excited to sort of give it another spin. I wanted to also make it a prequel, but not about the meeting. So I had mine set between the pilot and the rest of the series, and it's written and directed by Amy Poehler. My cast here for Blanche, I have Sigourney Weaver. My Dorothy is Jane Fonda. My Sophia is Catherine E. Coulson, who played the log lady on Twin Peaks. Uh, and my Rose is, of course, Betty White. Despite being 98 years old, she looks almost exactly like she did in the show. So I'm just going to have her play that role again. She looks practically the same. I brought in Neil Patrick Harris as Coco. He was, uh, he's very starkly young compared to the other people, but he worked as their housekeeper in the pilot. And he was openly an openly gay character who was cut from the rest of the series by network censors. So I brought him back for this movie. And I also have Jeff Goldblum as Clay, who's Blanche's younger brother, who's kind of a minor character throughout the series, and he's also gay. And I have Alex Trebek himself. Uh, that's my rule. I'm using Alex Trebek in The Golden Girls. Uh, he had a guest appearance on the original show, so I'm kind of attributing that by bringing him into the movie here. This movie takes place, like I said, between the pilot episode and the series. And Coco, who is the openly gay character in the pilot, uh, he wins a chance to appear on Jeopardy. So he takes the entire cast with him to sunny California in the early 80s. So we get to see the girls along with Clay uh, be fish out of water, sort of. They're taken from the East Coast in Florida all the way to sunny California. So they're out of their own world here. And I went through and sort of broke down the character arcs of the movie. So at Clay at this point is still in the closet before coming, his coming out episode, which was in season four of the show. So he spends a lot of time with Coco, who's openly gay. And they kind of explore the gay nightlife of Hollywood. And we see Clay sort of discover his sexuality throughout the movie, which kind of sets up his arc for later on in the show. And Dorothy, who's known in the show as being like a New York liberal, she goes to California and learns that she's progressive for the East, but California is way more progressive than she is. And she sort of learns to become even more liberal than she was before, setting her up to be the liberal of the group in the show. And Rose, who's Betty, White, Betty White's character, she's sort of a naive Midwesterner and a recent widow. And she's shocked by the wild world of California that's so different than what she's used to. And she finds herself unknowingly wandering into a gathering of these 1980s socialites, along with Blanche, who's, recent, who's recently been divorced, and she's finally putting herself back on the market. And despite Blanche constantly trying to pick up men, Rose is the one that gets all the attention. And she feeds a love interest, but has to tell him that she's not ready because her husband recently passed. And it sets her up for the first season where she has this arc of coming around to find love again. 
And Sophia, who's the older mother, uh, she's excited to see the world after spending years in a nursing home and just recently getting out, which is what happened right before the series started. And she explores she explores the world of strange California foods, from bad pizza to good sushi. She tries all the crazy California foods, and that kind of ignites her love for all these food-related jobs that she goes through in the original series. She's kind of a character that transitions between various different, like, absurd restaurant jobs and like she works at like a spaghetti sandwich shop for a few episodes and stuff like that so i kind of wanted to introduce that arc to her in this movie so after their separate adventures uh through that long night they're kind of off on their own kind of discovering california themselves uh they lose coco and they must reunite to try and find him in time for his appearance on jeopardy so they after these separate experiences they reunite and kind of like retrace their steps and eventually have to find coco and Coco does win on Jeopardy and wins a good amount of money and decides to move to California and stay here where he can be more accepted for his sexuality. And that kind of is a way to explain why he's in the first episode, but not in the rest of the show. And he asks Clay to come with him, but Clay is not yet comfortable with his uh, sexual identity, so he chooses to remain at home. And the girls all return home, settled into the characters we know them as, and setting up the series as we know it. And that's my pitch. All right. Good. Nice road trip movie with the Golden Girls. Uh, Bobby, what is your pitch for the Golden Girls movie? Uh, we did something very similar and then something extremely different. So this will be interesting. Um, I'll start with my cast. Um, as Dorothy, I have Helen Mirren. Uh, as Blanche, I have Carol Burnett. Uh, as Rose, I have Sally Field. Uh, and then Sophia, I ha- couldn't leave her out. I also included Betty White. And this is this was the role she had in the movie version, not the show. Um, because she's older than the rest of the cast, she would be the the mother-in-law character. Um, and my rule is that I am going to include Sean Connery, and I'll let you know how that comes in as I go. Uh, my directors, which will give away kind of my uh, my premise, or at least my uh, tone, is going to be Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Um, so one problem when you have a show that's iconic, and then you have a movie based on that show, and you're trying to make another one, is you can't really make it too similar if you do too similar to the show, especially nowadays, it's not going to be nearly as relevant. So I wanted to amp it up and bring in a kind of a different audience a little bit so that you can include the older generation as well as the younger people that would enjoy this comedy. So mine is essentially a road trip, road trip sex comedy. Um, because Blanche in the show, as Tristan mentioned, had gotten divorced and she uh, kind of talks about men and sex in the show quite a bit. Um, so she is very obsessed with Sean Connery and loved the James Bond movies coming up. He is on it. He is going to be coming back into the United States to get his, uh, his, his, get himself on the Hollywood walk of fame, which he does not have currently. So I want to give him that in this movie. Um, so she convinces the golden girls to go on a road trip across country. Cause she's afraid of flying to California to, to Hollywood um, to try to hook up and ambush Sean Connery. Um, so this is going to be a, a road trip movie, truly. Uh, it's going to actually be a road trip across the whole way instead of just kind of arriving in Hollywood and or in California like Tristan's. So they're going to show up at like different events, like a um, they have to stop and it's a a college uh, frat um, pregame for a football game. They stop at like a ga- gas station at night with some sketchy figures and some crazy stuff going on. Um, they pick up a hitchhiker who ends up being wanted by the cops, leading to a police chase that's aired on TV. Um, so they have these crazy things and you just, you get to know the characters and their interactions because that's what the show really is about. 
and you kind of amplify the characters that they were on the show to get that comedy that Phil Lord and Chris Miller can do like they did with 21 and 22 Jump Street. Um, and when they get there, the third act with Sean Connery, they end up kidnapping him and try to hook up. So he's in most of that third act with them trying to, um, like they have him kidnapped and they're on the run because people know someone kidnapped Sean Connery, uh, as they try to convince him, he ends up at the end, just kind of declining because he was, he's married at that point, but they have like a crazy wild party. He invites them back to witness his, him getting the, uh, star on the walk of fame. And they have like a party at the end of the movie with shots and drunken older women and men. And it's just a pretty fun, fun road trip, R-rated comedy. All right. All right. So, so I'll start. I have a question and I think I'll start because mine kind of, I think you both can easily answer this question. At least my question. I don't know if Johnny has any questions, but, and I'll start with Bobby. But this question goes to Tristan as well. So the original Golden Girls movie had a cameo with Dick Van Dyke where he played a bartender. There was a five minute long sex scene between he and Betty White's character of Rose that many said was too graphic. Does your movie have something like this? So with mine, I'm obviously it's, it is very R rated. Um, but the thing is with the show is you don't, even with being R rated and loving the characters, that's a little too uncomfortable. So they suggest that stuff a lot. And there's a lot of swearing and like talk about sex. You see like college kids having sex in the background and that, but she doesn't actually hook up with Sean Connery at the end. So there's no like old lady sex scene. So okay. nothing quite like that, but that, that tone is there. All right. And uh, Tristan, same question. Yeah. It's definitely hard when you take like something that's a family comedy and you're like, Oh, let's make it like it's an R rated sex scene in the middle. So I didn't really have that, but I definitely have them going on this like escapade adventure with these socialites. You know, so I definitely have like this romance angle, but I definitely I didn't have like a graphic sex scene in there. No. All right, all right, uh, Johnny, do you got a question? Yeah, obviously there were uh, outstanding cir- circumstances that affected the box office of this movie coming out right after nine eleven. But I, the one of the other reasons this movie didn't do well, this movie came out almost ten years after the original series last aired in ninety two. How are you going to keep your movie relevant? 20 years after that, so 30 years since the original show. Like, I get Bobby making it like 21 Jump Street, but if I'm like an 18 year old kid and I want to go see an R rated comedy, why does your movie interest me in the Golden Girls? What kind of audience are you really hitting at? And we'll start with Bobby, I guess. Yeah, so with mine, I think it's kind of a little more self explanatory as far as just the tone of the movie that would attract it. Like, 21 Jump Street, I had no idea what that, what that was. But I saw the trailer and I saw the type of comedy and I thought it was really funny. Um, and so I ended up, ended up going and loving that movie. And that's going to be kind of the same thing here where it's going to rejuvenate it. Because if you just make a family-friendly Golden Girls movie, I feel like that's like a streaming movie nowadays. It's not going to be very relevant. Um, if you go and push the edge and you have some red band trailers out there, how they can market it, that would get people kind of like, oh, what is this? This raunchy, you know sex comedy with old women and Sean Connery's in it. What is this thing? It, it'll attract an audience for sure. Okay. Tristan to you. I'm going for a little bit of like an older audience. I think people who are in like their middle age and up are seeing like the world changing around them are sort of getting like this whiplash of seeing uh, social progress coming so quickly. And they're kind of logging for like the good old days. And I, I took like the good old days of golden girls as kind of like this, iconic old style sitcom and i'm putting that theme in there where they're at they're in california and they're kind of like struck by how different the culture is and they're starting to kind of like adjust to the new world of 
of progressive California, and I wanted to have that theme in there appealing to sort of the older demographic. Okay. All right. I think that's all we got question-wise. Yeah. Uh, okay. uh, Tristan, what don't you like about Bobby's pitch? Well, one thing I don't like is that uh, you – I think the biggest mistake of that original movie is that they put Betty White in a different role. I think that the appeal of Betty White is that she can come back and play this role she was made famous by again. And I think changing her up to a different character is kind of like a waste of using that actress again. And I also think that yours doesn't connect as directly to the show. And I think it's very popular now to like tie things in and have cameos and have connective tissue. And that's what I try to go for for mine. So I just think yours doesn't really appeal to the fans of the show at all. It just kind of like uses the characters, but it's not really a Golden Girls movie. So the problem with connecting things to a show, especially older and that it had an older audience at the time is that the fans are quite literally dying off, um, you know, to be frank about it. So if you tie it too strongly to the show, you're going to have a very small limited audience. There's going to be a, a group of people that go to see your movie, but you're not going to attract anyone new to the original show. You're not going to attract anyone new to this movie. Um, you're, you have strong connections that not a lot of people will get where it's like, um, this is why this sets up thing, this for the show. Cause between the pilot and episode and the episode two, um, this character's gone. So we're going to explain that that doesn't quite, that's not quite as relevant as if it's connected to a show now like the Marvel series is doing when they, when they end up putting out, you know, WandaVision and that, that needs connections. Golden Girls is, does not, it needs a reboot, a fresh reboot. Um, and also with Betty White, Betty White is fantastic, but she is 98 years old and she fits the character now of Sophia better than she does of Rose. Um, Rose uh, is, is a little bit younger in this. Sally Field is kind of on the younger side and it kind of, I feel like that that fits in this better than Betty White playing that again um, because you don't want to rely too much. She's going to be there. She's going to have her comedy. She's going to have her personality, but you don't want to put too much tax on her at that age. So she's going to be there and have her moments and be fantastic. Kind of like she was in the proposal where she had her moments. And they were really funny and she had her awesome scenes, but the movie didn't rely on her. Uh, and I think that's what you need right now with her. And I'm going to defend my connective tissue and say that it's not like you need to know. You know, it's sort of like The Mandalorian is doing where, like, you'll see Bo-Katan show up, but you don't need to know all the backstory of the character to understand why they're there. You know, there's these connective tissues, but you don't need to know who Chloe is. You don't need to know who Coco is. They're just characters in the movie. And if you have that context of the show, it's even better. But it's not necessary to understand the plot. And I also think part of the, like, the joke of the original series is that Sophia is younger than some of the women on the show. They just age her up with makeup and effects and things like that. So I think if you're going to bring her in, you can't. You don't want to bring her in as a 98 year old, way older than the rest of the cast. I think that kind of like defeats the original purpose of the character. Well, the purpose of the character it wasn't necessarily. It wasn't like a joke of the show that she was younger. That's kind of just like a fun trivia fact. They made her look older to fit the character on the show. They don't really need to do that in this case because Betty White is older. Even though you probably do have to make her look older because Betty White looks fantastic, but. Um, that's, I think we're getting, getting into the nitty gritty of like those little details. And those are minor to, to be honest. It's the tone of the movie, the, like what type of audience you're going to get. And is this movie going to be relevant today? I feel like yours would be, it would go right to cable at the, at this point or on a streaming service. And it would just be a kind of a connection to the original show and that's it. And it would be gone. Uh, someone's binging the series. They may watch it between the pilot and that that's about it. 
um, mine could live on, rejuvenate it for a younger audience and actually get people interested in it and be like, you know, and rediscover the amazingness of Betty White and the rest of those characters. Oh, well, the reason that I picked Amy Poehler as my director and writer is that she's doing some a lot of movies for Netflix right now. So I'm honestly kind of making this as like a Netflix movie that people can watch on Netflix and that can kind of like, oh, you've seen this movie. Now let's go watch the show when it can kind of bring the two together. So that's yeah, what I'm going for gonna, is like a Netflix Net- movie. Netflix puts out so many movies. If you're even going to pick a streaming service, Netflix isn't the right one for this because it won't stand out. Um, you know, I, I think we're getting into too many details right now. I think, you know, if you yeah, guys have I, your decision. I, I made up if Johnny yeah. does. Yeah, yeah, I do. Johnny, where, right. Johnny, where are you leaning? So I think um, the problem with with uh, both movies, Bobby's connecting it to a younger audience like 21 Jump Street, but I don't think Golden Girls really has that same appeal like uh, premise-wise than you could have done with 21 Jump Street. But I respect what he's going for. Tristan, Bobby said it. The audience for the original Golden Girls is literally dying off. And, you know, for someone who has never watched it, never been into it, like, I'm not going to go see your movie. And then for all the old people that are going to go see your show, you're also introducing too many progressive liberal ideas into it, I feel like, for the audience, even that you are pushing for. Um, so well, I, I disagree that, with that. I think the show is very progressive for its time. There were tons of gay storylines. It was very well known for being progressive, especially with LGBT issues at the time. Yeah, but if you're looking at now and you update it to those issues nowadays compared to how the show was then, and you're going for older audiences, I feel like you're just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking your audience. You're going to make a movie that someone is really, you know, passionate about, I'm sure, but. I think Bobby's has more appeal to me and has more appeal to more audiences. And I think the idea of keeping it fresher with the homages to the uh, crazy sex scene in the original movie, I think is funny. Um, But Tristan, I think Tristan might've had more going for it. If your movie came out like 2001, like when the original movie came out, but yeah, I agree with Bobby connecting it to the show was your mistake. You could have stuck closer to the original, but not had connections to it. And I think the problem was connecting it. Uh, to the to the pilot and the original show way too long after the show was uh, done. So I'm going to go with Bobby. That's who I would pick if I was in charge. Yeah, my thing is, I, I don't know if Lord and Miller are like the right pick for this. I don't know if, I think they're almost like too high profile as well to do a Golden Girls reboot. I don't know who the right pick is for this, but. I think Amy Poehler is a much better pick, but yeah, I, think I think Amy Poehler is. Bobby's pitch was better. Like an Amy Poehler, Rashida Jones, or someone like that, mm-hmm. or Tina Fey, someone would be a better pick. But I also agree with a lot of what Johnny said. And I'll also, basically, I agree with everything Johnny said, but I'll also add it felt like his movie felt too much like the gay characters in the movie were the lead characters in the movie and the golden girls were kind of around them. And if I'm going to see a golden girls movie, I want the golden girls front and center. And Bobby sounded more like it. The golden girls were a lot more front and center in his movie. So I'm going to go with Bobby as well. And so Bobby gets All right. Good start, but I've started that way before and tend to lose on the last one. So we'll see. <laughs> All right, Tristan. So where are we going for uh, the second film? Uh, let's go with how the East was won. All right, perfect. Uh, let me throw it up there. And who's going to go first? Bobby can go first. Bobby can go first. All right, How the East Was Won is from 1975. Got a 52% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Robert Klaus, who was most known for directing Enter the Dragon, made his first and only Western with this forgotten Clint Eastwood movie. 
Clint Eastwood plays Corduroy Blue, a bounty hunter in late 1800s Texas who was hired by the Chinese government to come to China and track down the, their most notorious serial killer, played by Ewell Brunner. All right. Bob. Okay. All right. So um, my movie is going to be directed by Park Chan-wook, who directed Old Boy. Um, and my rule for mine is I'm going to resurrect an actor's career. Uh, so that car- that um, actor is going to be Timothy Dalton, who has mostly done TV in the last few years, um, has voiced animated characters, but his last live action movie was The Tourist in 2010, which was terrible. Uh, and then his little his part in Hot Fuzz. So he's, he hasn't been around in a while. Uh, so he's going to be my main character the in, in the movie. And then I have other characters. I'll just kind of name what they are, and you'll get the hint, of, like the picture of why I'm naming them this way as we go. Um, Choi Min-sik from Old Boy is going to be playing the serial killer. Uh, Kang Ho Song from Parasite is going to be the Korean. Vladimir Mashkov is going to be the Russian. Daniel Bruhl is going to be the German. Uh, Diego Luna is going to be the Mexican. Uh, Ewan McGregor is going to be the, the British UK kind of guy. Um, so my movie, I'm going to change it from 1800s Texas to modern day. Uh, instead of a bounty hunter back at the time, he's a former assassin slash bounty hunter for the, like for the mob in New York City, uh, known for finding his man no matter where they hide. He is brought along with people from other countries to take down a serial, serial killer. Uh, Dalton has to deal with tracking down the assassin as well as traps and fights with the other people involved that want the reward and fame for themselves. So it's a guy getting back into the game, kind of like the first one, but he has to face off a bunch of against a bunch of different adversaries coming against to do the same mission, essentially. Okay, and, that, and that's your whole pitch. Yeah, it's shortened to this to the point. I'll get into more details as we fight. All right, I respect so. it, uh, Tristan. What's your what's your how the east is one? Uh, my how the east is one. I had centered around a holiday is my rule. Uh, and I had it written and directed by uh, S. Craig Zeller, who did Bone Tomahawk. He's done some kind of like modern setting westerns that are pretty good. And I have Coderoy Blue. I also modernized mine and made him like a modern bounty hunter who's tasked by the Chinese government to hunt down a serial killer in Beijing who promises to strike every day during the Chinese New Year celebration. So my Coderoy is played by Jeff Bridges. And the target is uh, named An Chen, <clears throat> and he's played by uh, Samu Liu, who's soon to be uh, Shang-Chi in the MCU. And the government is sort of like a government-based kind of assassin who's assigned to tail Corduroy and keep him accountable and make sure he's doing what they were told to do. He's played by Donnie Yen. And Yun Fat Chow, he's a popular actor in China. I have him playing the government official who's tasked Corduroy with the hit, and he's sort of like this background government official. He was manipulating kind of the events of the film. The movie plays sort of like a traditional cat and mouse thriller. So there's elements of fish out of water with Corduroy not being part of the Chinese culture. So he's struggling with the language and not really knowing his way around Beijing. But he's sort of tracking down this killer who's striking day by day. And he's getting closer and closer to trying to find him. And he's really racing against the clock as this guy is continuously killing people. But the film directly addresses the modern-day political issues of China, where the government is very oppressive and controlling. Because as we learn more about the killings, we learn that all the victims were pro-democracy activists who were active in the protests going on in China right now. And Kodori becomes suspicious of the government that they're not telling him everything of, about his job. And when he finally catches An in the center of his operations, he learns that An is a pro-democracy leader who was targeted for assassination by the Chinese government. And that's why they uh, 
brought Corduroy on to kill him. And he's been used as a scapegoat for assassinations that were done by Donnie Yen himself, who's the guy who's been tailing Corduroy the whole time. So and An is not actually the, the killer. Donnie Yen is. So Corduroy teams up with An to hunt down Don, uh, Donnie Yen, disobeying the orders of the government. In the finale, together they fight against Yen. So in the finale, they, they have this big kind of battle between this guy and uh, Corduroy, and and they uh, he finally beats him, and he gets a call from the government official who hired him, and he's really mad. He says, what have you done? And Corduroy gruffly responds, what you paid me for, and throws the phone away, and he walks into the crowd of the Chinese Lantern Festival, which is a festival that marks the final end of the Chinese New Year. And that's my pitch. All right. Uh Really like the rule rule uses. Uh, Johnny, do you have a question for them? Yeah. um, So this movie was, uh, people might remember it, it was recently trending on Twitter, uh, highlighting the use of uh, yellow face in the original one. With the uh, recent bad publicity of the original, how does that affect the marketing of each of your reboots? Start with Tristan. Well, I try to address that by having actual Asian actors in my, my roles and also by directly addressing uh, political issues that are active in, in China right now. So I wanted to sort of like reflect that bad publicity by making it very directly political and addressing modern day political issues to make it sort of relevant today and responsive to the backlash. Okay. Bobby. Uh, so really it's just, I mean, you have to cast correctly. And so you cast, um, you know, the Asian actors as Asians in this movie, you, you actually use people from their country. I mean, Timothy Dalton is the only one in this movie cast that's not from the country he's playing, but that's because British people play Americans like in every movie essentially. Um, but you know, you, you cast it correctly and that's all, and all you gotta, all you gotta do really to address that being a, a fear. Um, so I, I don't think it's going to be too much of an issue. All right. All right. Joe, what do you yeah. have for him? And my question goes to both of you as well. I'll start with Tristan. Uh, Quentin Tarantino lists how the East is one as one of his biggest influence. He says without it, there would be no Django Unchained or Inglorious Bastards. Why didn't you pick him to direct when he's the clear and obvious choice? Well, I think uh, Quentin Tarantino, you don't really want to mix him with his heroes. You know, I think you don't want to have him come on and take on a movie that inspired him. I think he'd rather leave that to someone else. And I wanted to bring on a director who has some previous uh experience in this sort of genre here and i think i'd much rather have it be something that tarantino would love to watch and enjoy rather than something that tarantino could get his hands all over all right uh bobby uh yeah tarantino what he does best is he takes his influences and puts them into his own original movies i don't want to see him remake something especially something that he loves because i feel like his tendency is going to be to almost do shot for shot remakes. Cause that's kind of what he does in his movies certain times in, you know, reference to the movies he loves. So I'd rather see Tarantino do something original. All right. All right. Both great answers to both questions. I think you guys have yeah. thought these through. Yeah. All right. Both um, very familiar so with this movie. I think Tristan started off last time, Bobby, what don't you like about Tristan's movie? So Tristan and I pitched movies that's going to, that are going to appeal to similar audiences, but I feel like, um, mine just sounds like a much more fun movie. Uh, yours is like a buddy movie, but has like a bunch of political issues in Chinese, in the Chinese, um, you know, the con- in the country in China right now. 
which might limit its uh, relevance a little bit to who's going to watch that one. Mine is a more straightforward movie with a lot of cat and mouse games. You have this older guy coming back in the game with a lot of younger guys that are kind of trying to do the same thing and take each other out. It's just, mine is a very fun action movie, but it's like an action thriller because, you know, you have the director of Old Boys. You've got the thrillers, but it's just a more, I find mine more intriguing to watch than something that's kind of a buddy comedy thrown into China rather than, but, and mine is more of like a action thriller with someone that I want to see come back and do this again, uh, like he did in James Bond, because I don't think he got a very fair shake doing those two movies. Um, I think he could have been one of the best Bonds we've had if he had a better, you know, better chance at it. Uh, so I like to see that. I like to see all these different characters coming in uh, from the different countries. You get the different versions of their tech and like maybe their spy work, depending because you have some people that are coming in that are assassins, some that are mobsters, some that are, uh, you know, their version of the secret service type CIA type, you know, um, characters and that, and you get this really fun mix and just a really fun movie um, versus yours sounded a little bit more generic. And there are a lot of movies that try to address that Chinese uh, stuff going on right now. And China blocks those, like they don't allow a lot of that to happen. So I don't know how, if it comes out, uh, China may not be able to watch it, which might limit its audience. Well, I think if anything's appealing now, it's political activism in movies. And I think that this would be very popular in the, in the United States and in all kinds of European countries and sure China might block it, but I think this should be a big hit where it is. And I honestly feel like China blocking it would give it some positive publicity People will be like, oh, I got to see how they're going to handle this. And yours feels like a straight-to-DVD movie. Like, Timothy Dalton has been done nothing in so long, and I'm sure you're you're trying to revive his career, but this doesn't feel like a career revival. This feels like a straight-to-DVD, like, C-tier actor doing a bad action movie. And you just called mine just thrown into China, but that's, like, totally the opposite of what it is. Mine's directly involving Chinese politics, and it's not like the primary focus is the politics. It's there to be a backbone to the story and the twists. But it's not thrown into China when I'm directly using Chinese politics as part of the plot. So I think that mine uses China, the setting, very interestingly and very in a very modern way. And I think yours just sounds like a movie that I would laugh at at family video and not pick up. Well, Timothy, the difference between a lot of like the straight to DVD movies is a lot of those actors like Bruce Willis that do those, they tend to not care. Um, and it's just kind of a, they don't they just kind of sleepwalk through the movies. Timothy Dalton is awesome. Like even the work he's been doing on TV lately has been fantastic. It's just that because it's on TV, it's a little, it's a little bit more limited of who's seeing this. Um, and I think he gives off kind of a suaveness and badassery type of thing that could fit this movie. Kind of like, you know, Keanu Reeves um, in John Wick. John Wick, if you put, um, a, if you kind of take the premise, that sounds like a straight to DVD movie. But it works. And I think that's the type of thing that could work here, especially with the dynamic of all these different assassins and guys coming in. Uh, you have stars in there around it as well. It's not like it's Timothy Dalton, the only one in this thing. You have some appeal from these other actors. Um, Ewan McGregor was just, you know, the villain in a comic book movie. Um, and he's Obi-Wan Kenobi in the series coming up. He's going to draw a crowd. Um, and And honestly, it's just... Your because mine being I'm still sticking it in Korea and there's a lot of political things there, but you know, the only thing that you kind of have to show with mine is kind of the corruption of North Korea and that, which is going to come up as like a problem of when they can go after this guy. And when, if he hides in North Korea, how they can get in and all that stuff. And I feel like that ties in enough of an intrigue 
without going too heavy handed. Um, I mean, when it comes down to it, our movies are pretty similar. I just like my premise more, to be honest. I like, I, I think that sounds like a more fun movie. I think mine's more relevant. I think mine uses the rule better. I think that mine is more faithful to the original. You're still going to China and you're modernizing the fact that if you pick, if you place a movie in China now and he's like hired by the Chinese government, everyone's going to ask like, oh, how are they going to address like the fact that the Chinese government is this ruthless dictatorship that's being resisted by the people. And I think making the twist at the end being that, oh, the Chinese government is actually the bad guys and now they're going to team up to like fight the bad guys at the end. And I think that's, mine's like an action thriller and it doesn't. Yeah, but that's the obvious twist, right? Because everyone knows that the Chinese government is corrupt. So if you're having them go there and everyone's expecting that and that's the ending, I feel like it's a little anticlimactic. I mean, yes, it gets, it gets maybe a point across, but it's a very direct and obvious point of Chinese government is controlling and is, is corrupt and is, you know, is the bad one. So that you can see coming. Um, also, you have Jeff Bridges as your lead, and I have Timothy Dalton. Jeff Bridges and Timothy Dalton are both awesome actors. I don't feel like there's a different level, especially in an action movie. I actually feel like Timothy Dalton is better suited than Jeff Bridges. I mean, well, mine's not necessarily an action movie. It's more of a, a thriller. You know, you're seeing this yeah. guy kind of de- de- like demystify this this mystery of who is really killing all these people. And it's not like the twist at the end, like oh, it was actually the Chinese government the whole time. Like he's figuring that out as he's going along. And you're kind of going along that with him and saying like, oh yeah, I know that I know, I knew it. I knew it the whole time. And so what, what, what is, what is climactic about that ending to me? If it, cause thrillers only pay off for the most part, they pay off because it's tension throughout the movie. And then there's a big payoff. And this is, this is the release of the movie. Um, if the, if the payoff of the movie is just what you think it's going to be throughout the whole movie, um, why is that? When you're going along, you're still thinking that this guy is the killer. And then we kind of uncover that this guy actually, and that's kind of the twist more, less so than the Chinese government bad. It's more like, Oh, this guy you thought was a killer is actually like a pro-democracy activist and he's doing the good things. And Donnie Yen, who's doing the protection of, of Kodura, he's actually the bad guy. Both movies pretty well, except Bobby, what is the tone of yours? Um, I would call mine a thriller. So it is more focused on the action with more thriller focused. being the invested characters coming in. You want to see uh, like different types of action, different types of te- technology. Action scene battles with people. Well, here's the thing. And either, you know, talk his way out of it. Maybe just get the upper hand for a split second to get these other assassins. He just has to escape. Five. Okay. And you're I, big- get, I get I get all these. It's like Pierce Brosnan in an action movie now with the Timothy Dalton thing. I, th- I think that's very... Yeah. Similar, I just watched, um, was it The Irishman? And Pierce Brosnan basically does what Bobby is saying Timothy Dalton's going to do. I, I understand the level of action I think he's going for with that, especially because Timothy Dalton, I think, is younger than Pierce yeah, Brosnan. He is. Um, so here's my thing with it I like both, so it came down to a few small details for me. So I took a lot of notes because I wanted to make sure I got, got everything right, remembered things. First of all, Bobby. I think you chose the wrong director. Um, I'm a huge Park Chan-wook fan, but his movies are not action movies. His movies are thrillers. And usually, like, the Venge- he did The Vengeance Show Maiden. It's awesome. So Tristan said that it feels like a straight-to-DVD movie. No, it doesn't, because he literally picked, you picked probably the number two director behind uh, Bong Joon-ho in South Korea. This dude has made a ton of, like, the number two all-time in that country. And he has appeal here because anytime you say the director of Old Boy, people are going to go see it. Um, but 
If Bobby, if you chose uh, Jiwoon Kim, you would have won because your movie is a Western about an assassin and a serial killer and that you're resurrecting someone's career in an action movie. Jiwoon Kim did The Good, The Bad, and The Weird, which is like a Korean Western. He did I Saw the Devil, which is about a serial killer. He did A Bittersweet Life, which is about an assassin. And he did The Last Stand, which is an American movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger that revitalized his career. Man, it's if you chose him, your movie was a home run winner, no matter what, because so he I, kind I, of just mixed yeah. all his things together. And I, I could address that if Tristan brought it up, but I, I, you know, yeah, I, and, I, and, you, and neither of you really brought up the directors, but I think this is what it comes down to to me. As much as I think Bobby screwed up a little bit um, on the directing choice, I'm going to go see anything Park Chan Book does. Bone Tomahawk was amazing. Brawl in Cell Block '99 was a huge disappointment, and. You chose the guy who made a movie about Mel Gibson being the basically hero of a movie playing a cop that it's a movie that doesn't hold up. He did Dragged Across Concrete. That movie was like immediately, oh, this movie will not hold up in history. It's very against everything that this country immediately went through afterwards. And you chose him to make a movie about China's political um, environment. I think you just chose the complete wrong director to do the movie you described. I think his best quality is the action and not the tension. Um, and I think Bobby's director, while his best quality is the tension and not the action, he can still do action better than your guy can do tension to me. So S. Craig Zeller kind of lost the point to me, and I'm going to go with Bobby's choice on this movie. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what Johnny said, especially because I, like, I looked him up. I'm like, S. Craig Zeller did Brawl in Cell Block 99, right? And I looked it up and I'm like, okay, so Bobby, I think that you guys didn't really talk about the director thing that much, but I was like, Bobby definitely wins the director. And then as far as, and the one point that was brought up against uh, Tristan's that really stuck with me is like, your movie is a twist that I've seen so many times that it's like barely a twist anymore of like, oh, the guy he's been working with is really the bad guy the whole time. And it's just like, if I saw that in the movie, like it wouldn't even be a twist. For me, it would be like, oh, I guess they went with this thing that I've seen a bunch of times. And then especially if the guy he's working with is Donnie Yen, and then like the serial killer is a guy that's really not that famous, I'm probably going to assume that Donnie Yen's going to turn out to be the bad guy at the end, whether he's the serial killer or not. And eventually he's going to be the bad guy. So I'm going to have to go with Bobby on this one just because I feel like his movie, while Tristan's movie does sound interesting and I definitely watch it, Bobby's the movie that I feel like I'd be happier walking out of. Yeah. The, um, the other thing with it too is as soon as this, before either of you pitched, I wrote martial arts plus Western wins. And Bobby had more of that. Like this movie was perfect setup for kind of what Bobby did. It wasn't my ideal uh, version of it, but it, it sounded like something I would go, I would watch over and over again. Um, and yeah, Tristan, I think yours felt a little more forgettable, even though I'd definitely go see it. Um, but all right. So Tristan, you're in a hole early. I'm, I'm smelling that. Uh, what's that chip that you haven't eaten? You've won ever since you said you were going to do the one chip challenge. That's true. So I'm bringing that back. If you lose, you better be able to pull that out of somewhere. Yeah, we've had some pretty shit calls so far, so I'm not sure how I'm going to go. You're, you're not. I could have broken everything down better so far. I think um, you just don't love these movies like Joe and I do. Yeah. Um, these are, these right. are classics that I grew up on, man. Yeah. Tristan, what are we doing next? You got you to gotta win here. You got to go with something strong. Let's go with... Um, hmm. I'm going to go with 
hard choice to make here. It's hard to pick between these movies. I'm going to go with one, one step at a time. One step at a time. Okay. One step at a time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who's going first? And I'll go first on this one. All right. One Step at a Time came out in 1963. It has a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Definitely the most high-scoring movie we have this episode. Uh, Billy Wilder directs this Oscar-nominated classic, a biopic starring Jimmy Stewart as Richard James, the inventor of the slinky. So, what do you got, Tristan? Uh, I use my rule as must be a tearjerker. So I picked the director as Morton Tildum, who did The Imitation Game, which has like an incredibly effective tearjerker ending that's like an Oscar bait-level tearjerker ending. And that's kind of what I'm going for here. I want it to be like one of those Oscar-nominated Best Picture movies that makes you cry at the end, even if it doesn't necessarily win Best Picture. It's very emotionally effective. And my cast here is Michael Keaton, who plays Richard James, the military engineer who discovers the slinky. And Robin Wright plays his wife, Betty James, his often overlooked business partner. And we follow the struggle to make their underdog idea into a reality. Also, the backdrop of World War II and the social rise of first wave feminism, as women are recently granted the right to vote. And during World War II, women were forced into the workplace. So they're kind of forced into like this prominence of feminism where they're really demanding equality. And that's relevant to the plot because Betty's contributions to this link are often overlooked. She came up with a name. She came up with the jingle that made it very famous. She managed a lot of the marketing in the business. And yet Richard was the one that became the famous like military man turned inventor who created the Slinky. And we use World War II as a backdrop. So we kick off with Pearl Harbor. He was in the Navy. So we want to have Richard as this constant, at this constant threat of maybe having to go back to war. And that kind of adds attention to their relationship. Uh, the toy is an instant hit. Uh, when they first created it, they only made a few hundred. Uh, just in time for Christmas of that year, but it was a huge, huge success. So the couple constantly kept making more and making more and more money. But as they're making more success, I have their relationship kind of falling apart in the background. So as their uh, wealth grows, they're really struggling and they're arguing all the time and they end up having a very big fight bound to go separate ways. And Richard decides that during an interview at FAO Schwartz in New York City, which is like the big, famous, famous toy store that looks awesome and kind of has been like neutered in the in the recent decades, it would be fun to see that at its prime again. You see Richard do an interview where he decides to promote his wife and give her credit saying that she did a lot of the marketing work and that it was like equal work between the two of them and that she deserved just as much credit as she has. And Betty's watching it on TV and realizes that Richard recognizes her, her contribution to the Slinky and recognizes her importance to the marketing of it. So our tearjerk ending comes as the couple reunites and reconciles on the street during a celebration of VE Day in 1945 in New York City. The heartwarming music blasts as they're kind of reaffirming their love for each other and they kiss in a big famous tribute to the to the famous photo we all know from the nurse kissing the, the soldier. And we kind of tribute that with this couple reuniting and putting the differences aside to work together and make the Slinky the massive, massive hit that it is today. So text comes up on screen that tells us that 300 million Slinkies have been sold across the world. And it informs us that Richard died in 1974 from a heart attack. And in 2001, Betty was recognized for her work and inducted into the Toy Hall of Fame. And she died seven years later. The final image is a photo of the real-life couple. And it tells us that Slinky is still sold by the hundreds of thousands even today. All right. Is that out? That's my pitch. All right. Bobby, what, what do you got for the Slinky? All right. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on that one. But um, 
for mine, uh, I'll start with my director is going to be Stephen Merchant, who is a great actor and also just directed Fighting With My Family, uh, which is a great um, family movie with drama and some comedy thrown in. Uh, I just I like the tone of that movie a lot. Um, my rule is that I'm going to use uh, the cast of or SNL cast members, and these ones happen to be all past ones who I think can pull off a good mix of drama and kind of the, um, the kind of the comedy and some of the situations and conversations that I want. Um, so I have Bill Hader playing Richard James. I have Amy Poehler playing his wife, Betty James, who becomes the CEO of the company in 1960. Uh, I have Bill Murray as James's father. I have Alec Baldwin as a businessman that Betty deals with once she is CEO. And I have Will Forte as a guy from the U.S. who works with James in Bolivia, when, uh, who he befriends. So this movie starts with showing kind of the invention. So first off, when you already have a very successful Oscar-worthy movie, um, and it's a biopic, you, you have to change the focus of the movie. Um, since this movie was made in 1963, you know, before Richard died, and only three years after Betty became CEO, there's a lot of story to tell. Um, so that will be focused on the invention. This one is one step at a time of, here's the invention, and this is how a woman became CEO, uh, and one step as far as going from making a slinky, and one step as far as getting women into the business world and taken more seriously. Um, so the movie starts with the invention, but focus on the, is on their later life. Richard went to Bolivia, uh, to Wycliffe Bible Translators, and Betty James took over as CEO of James Industries in 1960. It's a love story with letters being written and visits while they are in different countries, uh, flashbacks of their early life and how genuine the invention was and how both of them contributed, um, including Betty, who like, Tristan kind of laid out, um, and the happiness that it brought. And that's intercut to show the differences in how business-like it ended up becoming um, and how Betty led the company when women were not taken seriously in business while Richard was over in Bolivia translating Bibles um, and kind of struggling with that as well. So it's kind of, it shows the second part of their lives that was not touched on in the first one because it was made too early. Um, and it, it, you have actors that can carry a tone in this movie that's going to be very family friendly um, and a good story to tell, very relevant nowadays, uh, especially with, you know, trying to push for, you know, women and for minorities and all that, you have that storyline, but it's all there's the focus on love, kind of like a better version of uh, what's the, the theory of everything, which was a love story with that was a biopic that was boring. This one is not boring because of the actors and the characters involved. Um, and yeah, I think there's a lot wrong with how Tristan decided to end a tearjerker movie that already had a tearjerker type ending that he could have done. So I'll get into that. All right. Uh, I'll ask my question first since, you know, I've been pondering this question as I've heard you guys pitch. Uh, I think I started with Tristan last time, so I'll go to Bobby. Uh, and this question is for both of you. Uh, the first film ended showing Walter Morrison playing with a popcorn tin on the beach and coming up with the first Frisbee, hinting at a toy movie universe. Uh, does your movie do anything like this? No, you got to do something different. Um, when when the original sets that up, and I, they didn't even follow through with that. Um, and this one, it's like, why try to do that again? There, you know, you you're gonna have because of the business type situations that Betty's gonna be in. They're gonna talk about different toys and how the marketing of all those happen and how they should change theirs for the Slinky and all that. But um, not 
not like setting up a universe. It's a biopic. Okay. You want to know the story. All right. And uh, Tristan, same question. I'm not attributing that. I think the first movie focused too much on Richard, and I wanted to make it focused on the relationship of the two people. You know, one step at a time is like this relationship kind of falls apart one step at a time, and then they have to put it back together one step at a time. And I wanted to remove the focus on Richard and focus on both of them, because I think the most interesting part of that story is Betty and and Richard, like the two of them together making this product and selling it. And I think history remembers Richard really well, but we don't remember Betty and I wanted to make this about both of them and see like oh this is people who together made this thing and and you can bring them both into the prominence not just Richard. All right, so no movie universe. No, no movie universe. No. Right. Okay. Right. Interesting. Johnny. I think you could really have done something with that, especially with an SNL cast. So that's a little disappointing. But um, okay, the the Slinky is near and dear to my heart because it's a very nostalgic toy. It was. Uh, it's important to the city of Philadelphia, which is my favorite city. All my favorite sports teams are from there. Um, that was where the first Slinky was. So I think the biggest criticism, at least that I have with the original movie, is that it, it's not a realistic portrayal of how the Slinky was actually invented. Um, how How is your movie, uh, is it going to be more realistic of how the Slinky was actually made? Or is it going to be like cast aside and focus on the rest of your story? Um, Bobby? So with mine, like I said, so the actual invention itself is going to be pieced apart throughout the movie so that you get those inner cuts. Um, and it's going to be pretty, it's going to be realistic to how it was actually created a little more and how they came up with the name and the jingle and all that. Um, and, you know, if it's the first one happened in Philadelphia, that's where it's going to happen. All right, Tristan. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to be realistic to the creation of the slinky and i wanted to focus mine definitely on like the rise of the slinky and like how this went from like an idea he had to something that was like a massive huge international success and like the characters behind that so that's why i wanted to focus mine okay all right, all right. vague answers like they're not yeah, entirely sure answers. how the slinky was made well he yeah he he was making um he was he's an engineer or whatever he was working on. And he basically a part of what he was working on. was a spring and he watched it fall and it fell down and he kind of liked how it kind of tumbled and did that shape. And that's what he was. That's what he, um, how he created the idea for the slinky at least. So that'll be there. I like that answer. I, I researched that. Cause yeah, the original one, you know, he's trying to work real hard. It's all about his one step at a time, trying to get the slinky to go down each step, but that's not how it happened. So I'm glad you guys, Really, uh, really nailed that, or at least Bobby did his research. Um, so, uh, Tristan, what did you not like about Bobby's movie? Why is yours better? Well, I think mine's better because it focuses on their relationship. It focuses on these two characters and their how their rise to popularity, and that we know, like, oh, they invented this thing and they became rich. But we get to see like the realism behind that struggle. Like these people who are real people, they had a marriage that was struggling in this behind the scenes of this. Like, this is all a true story, and you get to see like the reality of people who get launched into fame and of course you get to see the guy who was using using the spring and trying trying to figure out a way to like tie things together in his navy job and he was trying to figure out a way to use the spring and then you get to see that realization of oh he drops it and it falls on the stairs and he's oh my god look at this this is actually be a good toy that was like his inventor's realization of like oh this thing that i was trying to use in the military i can actually sell and you get to see this growth from like an idea into a product and then you get to see how that affects their relationship with the people so I think mine is a lot more focused on the characters and a lot more focused on their relationship. And I just like mine a lot more. I think mine, especially you go for the tearjerker ending. I think you get like that 
classic Teardrick moment of a couple reuniting and you get the you get the compelling music and you get the text on the screen telling them telling you like how these characters ended up and how their idea that he had in this one moment in the navy became like a humongous millions and millions of products sold that's that's what i wanted to go for and i don't think that bobby really captured that as much so the th- you're criticizing my movie for what i described my like i described my movie as the strength of their relationship and it and and then her as a businesswoman also taking over but like it's a love story between them you get the intercuts on the flashbacks then you get the current messages and letters to each other so you get their interactions in person as well as their words to each other from country to country um yours makes up too many things like the kiss at the end um you already have you have a story that already has kind of a tearjerker ending with him he has a heart attack in 1974 in bolivia um you know that could be a tearjerker ending on its own and you didn't go there you put it up in text so i don't quite understand that you're making it more on okay they kiss and then here's the words i don't get that as much of a tearjerker to me it's more of oh that's interesting oh wow she lived till 2008 or whatever it was or 2001 um like that's interesting but it doesn't you don't capture that emotion very well um compared to if you had shown him uh like the way i have it he dies in bolivia so you have this happen but it's not a i'm not making that the end of my movie because there's more story to tell with betty but i mean but you yeah it's you, I think you messed up on your turd jerker ending to me personally. Uh, and I like, I think my cast is more compelling to tell the, for the tone that I'm going with. I think yours would fall into a little bit more of generic biopic uh, where mine would have pretty like the funny moments and jabs that you get within to tell, but you tell a story. Like, I think that would be more entertaining to me rather than just a straight biopic that it has, you fudge the ending, you fudge how that the relationship a little bit just to create drama. Well, you say you're just focused on the relationship, but your characters are barely together. Like you start the movie and he's out of the country. You know, no, I want my characters thing. to be together. It's a focus of their relationship. The movie's about their relationship and I want them to be together. I want to see them struggling. I want to see them coming together at the end and realizing we can make this work. I want my characters together, sharing this relationship on screen together. Yours are That's just my movie. not together. Or that, or that's a lot of my movie where you're intercutting because you're going from the past to the to the present. So you're telling the story in slash out of order with you know the old All stuff right, happening yeah. at the same time. So they're together a lot. I have my decision. Uh, yeah, I do too. I do as well, Johnny. All right, I, I think um, this went a couple different ways because I, I think Tristan's pitch started off really strong. I, I thought it was going to be tougher. Bobby to do it. Bobby's pitch didn't completely sell me, but then he had some good points kind of hitting on Tristan's of this is not much of a tearjerker ending. And I thought it was a really, really good point to bring up the theory of everything because man, that movie sucks. That movie is so bad because it focuses on the love story of Stephen Hawking. But here's why that movie sucks because Stephen Hawking did a million more interesting things in his career And the least interesting part of his life is that the story that the theory of everything told. Whereas Tristan's movie tells, I think the most interesting part of their lives and one step at a time, not only a great pun for a slinky movie, but now being the genesis of their relationship falling apart and coming back together one step at a time, I thought is that's a brilliant way to use it. The original never really touched on that as much. Tristan, I think that was great. And I think um, the other thing is La La Land has that 
falling apart of a relationship and has a different type of tearjerker ending, but that's a good tearjerker ending. And that's what the relationship aspects of Tristan's movie reminded me of. And I really liked that. Bobby's feels like a forgettable movie. And he also said that the only thing you should do with like an Oscar type movie is make it, you know, go a completely different direction. Not completely, but out. yeah. And Tristan's is more like what the remake of true grit did, which was stay true to the original but add some current modern things and update the actors. So I would go see Tristan's definitely. So I Tristan would be my choice for sure. Yeah. Uh, before I make my ruling, Bobby, can I ask a question? Who does Alec Baldwin play in your movie? Um, Alec Baldwin, I he is a businessman that works with Carol once she is CEO. I didn't really name yeah, a, right. like a person right. for it, but I could do the research. All right, because you attacked... Uh, Tristan for the use of his rule he never attacked you for this and but I still know the rule is only use SNL cast members Alec Baldwin was never an SNL cast member he's hosted 17 times and he's cameoed numerous times but he's never actually been an SNL cast member so that was a ding against you and then I agree with a lot of what Johnny said and this is what I was it's like he took a lot did the same plot of the original but then focused Tristan focused his shift from uh, the husband to then uh, the wife, and I just I just don't know if like a comedic take, like a somewhat comedic take, is enough for me to be like interested in seeing this story again. Where it's like, hey, we're gonna take this story, but we're gonna tell it from a different character's perspective. I liked a lot more. So yeah, I'm gonna give the uh, point to Tristan here. Go on your way back. Okay. Here we go. All right, Bobby. Uh, um, let's go with the eyes have it. All right, just a second. Got to switch up the scoreboard here. The eyes have it. All right, the eyes have it. And uh, who's going to go first? Um, I'll go first. All right, the eyes have it. It came out in 1927. It has an abysmal 8% on Rotten Tomatoes. Just, it's just not a good movie. And in what is Charlie Chaplin's biggest commercial and critical flop of his career, he wrote, directed, and starred in this movie about a blind barber who falls in love with a woman whose hair he's cutting, played by Gloria Swanson. When it's revealed that the woman is engaged to a U.S. senator, played by Al Jolson, the lowly barber has to convince her that she should be with him and not the senator. Okay. Um, so I changed my movie up just slightly, but it keeps the same story in there, so... Uh, my movie is going to be directed by Tyler Nelson and Michael Schwartz, who just did The Peanut Butter Falcon, which shows a, a fantastic relationship, even though it's not romantic, to, between two characters that are funny and sweet at the same time. Um, so I liked that for my movie. Um, my hairdresser in this movie, instead of a man, is going to be played by Kate Blanchett. Um, I feel like she has very striking eyes, and I feel like when you're blind, a lot of people kind of focus on them, and I feel like it's they stand out. Um, I think she's just a fantastic actress. Uh, the client um, is going to be played by Rose Byrne, who is engaged to the senator. Uh, and the senator, who is a very conservative senator, is going to be played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan in my movie. So if you couldn't tell by my kind of cast, you kind of can see where it's going a little bit. Um, it's a love story between two women that would that would ruin the conservative senator, senator's career if it gets out. Uh, the first part of the movie introduces the senator and the client as a couple and shows their dynamic, uh, which shows kind of the power-hungry senator. He controls the conversations and uses uh, their di uses um, her fiance, his fiance as eye candy. 
Um, their conversations are not very meaningful. It's a little more surface level, a little bit more focused on jobs and power. Uh, they, um, they had just moved, uh, so she has to find a new hairdresser in the area and meets Kate Blanchett. She's a little nervous at first because she's blind, but she sees a lot of her work and gets a lot of recommendations and trusts her. Um, and that they start having more meaningful conversations. It develops into a romance, but I don't want to get too many details in there. Um, but basically, the client ends up bringing a friend to the hairdresser. Uh, and this friend uh, witnesses their romance and tells her fiance. So this is how he finds out. He cuts off the relationship and says, you cannot speak to her, call her anything at all, or you're never going to work again. I'm going to you know, shut down your entire career. Um, this is the kind of down part of the movie where uh, the hairdresser is you know, depressed because he, she hasn't heard from her in a while. And one of the things that she had told uh, the client is that she listens to Jeopardy every day. And it's kind of a very calming uh, voice in Alex Trebek and that she loves his humor. So to apologize and to send something in there to know it's from her, she gets into contact with Alex Trebek's people and convinces him to go see her after telling her story of this blind hairdresser who listens to him every day. So that's how she apologizes. Uh, and Alex Trebek tells her who sent her. Um, they end up getting back together and uh, Rose Byrne um, releases details of the relationship with her husband to the press, which then kind of puts him out of favor with the public and he, he loses his upcoming election and the two women stay together. All right. All right. That wants some directions. Uh, Tristan, what, what yeah. is your uh, version of this movie? So for mine, I use Sean Connery in a role. That was my rule. Okay. And uh, my lead is Denzel Washington. His, his name is Charlie in this movie. It's a kind of a tribute to Charlie Chaplin. Uh, he plays a blind ba- a blind barber who owns a barbershop in Washington, D.C. And in the spirit with the original, he also writes and directs. Viola Davis plays a far left senator named uh, Alia Freeman. She's a love interest of the movie. And Tommy Lee Jones is her husband, who's also a senator named Senator King. He's sort of like a right senator, old school Democrat. Uh, and the president is played by Sean Connery. And I kind of wanted to go in the vein of fences in a little bit with the setting and the in the in the writing. So the story is kind of confined to a few locations. We spend a lot of time in Denzel's barbershop, uh, where he talks to his customers, and he's kind of a loner, but he interacts a lot with his customers, and he's he's very talkative with his customers, but he doesn't have a lot of close relationships. Uh, and there he meets Senator Elia Freeman, and uh, he's, his business is struggling because he's decided to not endorse the Black Lives Matter movement. So he's dealing with dealing with a lot of like backlash from the community about why did this black man who owns a barbershop not endorse Black Lives Matter. And Aliyah Freeman, who, like I said, is a far less senator, uh, she's obviously very adamant about Black Lives Matter being a positive movement and a positive civil rights movement. And despite their political differences, they kind of have this chemistry and they're connecting and kind of discussing these political differences they have in their personalities. And Charlie kind of falls for her instantly until she mentions her husband, Senator King. So over the course of several uh, several haircuts, uh, they discuss their politics in, their com- in the community. Uh, and we see that BLM protests are growing in the streets outside of the barbershop. So we have this sort of like long form story where it's over the course of like a year we're seeing her come in and get these haircuts. So we're able to see this relationship grow over the course of time. Uh, 
And as they get closer and closer, Charlie becomes only more brazen in his advances. And meanwhile, we see some settings at Elia's VC apartment. And that's like our second location here, where she's noticing similarities in her husband's rhetoric to Charlie's, where she's noticing that her husband, who is a center right Democrat, is not actually supportive of BLM and he's not very supportive of leftist ideology. Uh, and that he's sort of like this classical Democrat who's not actually progressive at all. Uh, and the turning point comes when Charlie gets very frustrated after protests break his window overnight. And he rants to Eliah at her next haircut that the movement is hurting the community. And Eliah asks if she can take him for a walk. So she walks with him to the Jefferson Memorial and kind of describes the setting to him and tells him about this. There's a rally going on of BLM protesters. You can hear their speeches and hear them chanting. And Eliah tells him that Jefferson owned over 600 slaves, including her own great-grandfather. Her surname, Freeman, was given to her well, when, his, when he was a, her great-grandfather was the first member of her family to fight for his freedom. He was given the name Freeman, but he was lynched and not long after. And she uses this to kind of contextualize what BLM is fighting for, for this man who's sort of separate from the movement and doesn't really connect with the ideology. She says, look at this history of racism that's in this country and this very town that we're living in. You know, our, our own ancestors were slaves that came through this port in D.C. And, you know, you're having to work at this barbershop. Meanwhile, white people are running this country. And there's this intense systemic racism that's built up in this country right in our own city. And, and that's what BLM is all about. And in this moment, uh, they kiss, but Aliyah becomes ashamed and just leaves. She tells him, I can't do this. We can't do this. We can't be together. I have a husband. I'm a politician. This would look so bad. But I cheated on my husband with you. And Charlie hits a new low. He uh, is very down on himself. He's very down on the business. He's ashamed of himself for blowing the relationship with Aliyah and trying to kiss her there. And he, he's very, you know, he, this is all his lost moment of the, of the plot. And the turning point comes here because he gives a pre he gives a haircut to the president Sean Connery, uh, who comes into the barbershop as sort of a publicity stunt where he's saying like, "Oh, I'm supporting this black-owned uh, business who's also anti-BLMC. It's not as like cut and dry white versus black as you think it is." And the president kind of puts on a show. He's very like positive and talkative to Charlie while the cameras are rolling, but when the cameras are not rolling, he's completely ignoring him. He's not interested in what Charlie's saying. He's not interested in his struggles, his, his conversation. And Charlie realizes like, oh, wow, this president and these these people who are not supporting me, they don't actually relate to my struggles as a business owner. They don't actually relate to my struggles as a person. And I've been misled. When the finale, Charlie goes to a large BLM march across D.C. Uh, he finds Elia among the protesters, kind of leading this movement as a senator. And they reunite, and Charlie tells her of his change of heart and tells her of the experience with the president. And together they march out in front of the White House, which is once built by slaves, as she reminds him. In the final scene, we, two, we see the two together in the barbershop, and they're kind of just discussing their lives. And we don't get, we don't get them together. You know, I think that their, their relationship still has ways to go. They're, they're friends, and they're having this positive relationship with each other. But they're not going to be like romantically together by the end of the movie. And in the final scene, we see them together. She's getting another haircut and there's a black lives matter sign outside the window of the, of the barbershop. All right. I'll say this. Uh, when, after Bobby pitched his movie, uh, I thought as long as, you know, Tristan's is pretty solid, pretty good. I think Bob, uh, I don't know. I just wasn't a fan of Bobby's pitch. 
And after Tristan's, hearing Tristan's, I think this is going to come down to who loses it more. Because I don't know. Just like it was a pretty like funny premise of like this barber falls in love with a girl who's Harry Cuts and then she's engaged to a senator. And then you both took it and made it like super, super yeah. serious. I'm going to just I'm going to describe my tone because mine yeah, really didn't I, come I, across I, as I, I pitched it. With, it's not. So I actually serious. have a question I wrote down for you guys while you were pitching because this was like. Chaplin's original plan to go solely dramatic films. He was following up the gold rush. The tramp character is great. And then he was like, I'm going to make a very serious movie. And he made a movie with such a ridiculous premise, but made it a, like a very serious drama. Why did both of you feel like going a less comedic route for both of your movies? Because neither of these sound like comedies. So I guess that didn't come across in my pitch. I kind of skipped over some stuff, but like, uh, the the reason one I have my directors which have a lot of comedy in there is and also like my movie is like an hour and a half I'd say dramedy romance where there's a lot of comedy with their dialogue and their relationship which is more much more lighthearted and that's where most of the movie focuses and then you have the moments where she's pulled away and with her husband that's a little bit more serious of like what's going on um, but like. I'd say 85% of my movie takes place with them, with their visits in the barbershop. You have the setup, you have when she leaves with the moments with her husband, when she then sends Alex Trebek, which is a very lighthearted, funny moment to have Alex Trebek come in there all of a sudden, um, even though it's like, it ties to her. So it's kind of funny. It's almost like a, mine's like a, a slightly more serious, like rom-com kind of deal, but it has the implications of the conservative Senate Senator um, and the les- like the LGBTQ stuff, but it's like, you know, that's not being discussed. It's just a romance happening. And because, and the only kind of details that are political is that, okay, because it's a gay relationship, it would then make the Republican sen- Senator look bad. So okay. it's much more simplistic than Tristan's very um, detailed plot. Yeah. Tristan, why did you go so serious with yours? You didn't think this needed to have some comedy in it? Well, I think I wanted to tribute Charlie Chaplin's original intention. You know, like you said, he was trying to make a serious movie. It didn't really come off as serious. So I wanted to kind of take the premise and be like, okay, let's actually do what he wanted us to do. Like, let's make this a serious movie. And I think like the original, like you said, it has a confused tone. Like he's trying to make it a serious movie, but it's so inherently ridiculous that it's not serious. And I think Bobby still has that confused tone. Like he was saying, like, oh, it's a dramedy, but it's a comedy. You know, it's this and it's that. And when he pitched it, you guys didn't pick up on any comedy at all. And I think that his feels like it has the same exact flaws as the original movie where it's like he tries to make something serious, but it's not that serious. And you're not really sure how you're supposed to feel about it by the end. In mine, I think I took the original intent of Chaplin to make this a serious movie. And I said, okay, how can we actually make this a serious movie? Like, how can we fulfill the premise that Chaplin set up in his in his concept for this movie? And I tried to go into that more than make it a comedy because that's what Charlie Chaplin is actually good at. I wanted to tribute what he intended to do. Joe, you got a question for him? Yeah. Uh, Johnny's question was more like wider scope. Mine's more narrow. And uh, uh, so who did I start with last night? It doesn't matter. Uh, whoever wants to answer first can answer first. So there's an infamous scene where uh, Chaplin's and Gloria Swanson's characters meet for the first time, uh, where Chaplin decided to tell it from his character's perspective. However, his character is blind and it was a silent movie. So it was just a black screen as the music played. Uh, many people watching it for the first time assumed the projector broke. Uh, do you guys have an homage to this scene? My homage is that the opening credits are like a black 
screen and you get the music and the credits come over and it's sort of like this slowly fading out from black and it's sort of a way to tribute like remember this all black scene we're not going to confuse the audience but we're going to start off kind of with that look so people can remember that scene without having to be like confused and laughing at the weirdness of the choice all right um mine doesn't have that scene uh at all but there there's going to be an homage where uh kate blanchett tells uh rose Byrne to close her eyes and listen for a moment and that'll be like this is this is all i hear this is all i witness so it's black for a moment you just hear kate blanchett saying like talking to her and it's not very long but it's just a quick homage and it kind of gets the point across to rose Byrne of what kate blanchett experiences all right i like that answer a lot um all right, I guess I'm going to let you guys fight it out. Uh, Keep it yeah. short. Yeah, yeah, so the main problem, so I guess my main flaw so far has been in my pitch, I forgot to tell you the tone, but I have that written up top. But mine is much more has much more comedy in their relationship and the dialogue, which is what's very good and sweet and funny in Peanut Butter Falcon between Shia LaBeouf, um, you know, in, and uh, I forget the actor's name in that movie who he is up with, but... Um, that's kind of the relationship I want. And that's going to be the focus. You have the outside parts of like, like any rom-com where they get separated and it's serious for a little while and there's implications. The more dramedy aspect is just the fact that you have a little bit more of a political tone in there, just with the conservative Senator and that, and he's a little bit more mean, um, type, type, you know, and so that's kind of the dramatic parts and the fact that she's come very worried about this ruining her fiance's career. But for the most part, it's their relationship, which is a much more simple movie, uh, very dialogue focused, um, very character focused um, inside the the barbershop on these different visits and the shows their relationship progress. Tristan's is very complicated, sounds very, very on the nose to me. Like I completely like even if I agree with the message you're telling people that agree with that message already know that message. And you're you're hitting the nail on the head so much in this movie that you're not going to get anyone else to go see it and actually learn the message that you're telling. Um, it's very obvious. It's, it, there's nothing in there that is subtle at all. Um, and it's going to be like fences is a good movie that is very, very long um, and is and, and boring for a lot of people. Uh, and that's what this movie sounds like to me. It sounds like another fences, which might get a little bit of a claim, but no one remembers fences at this point. Uh, even and your sounds like a more on the nose version of that. Well, I think that mine. You say that's not going to appeal to people who don't agree with the message, but I think the core character doesn't agree with the message, and I think he can be sort of like the gateway in for people who aren't totally sure about BLM. Maybe they're like, "Oh, I kind of understand what they're talking about, but I don't agree with their methods. I don't agree with what they're doing." But you can see Denzel sort of learn throughout the movie, like why they're doing what they're doing and where their motivations are at. And I think that's a good arc for people to have, not just as a character, but as an audience, people who aren't totally sold in the movement can watch this movie and, and see a character like them learn to understand the struggle. And I also think that if your pitch doesn't come off as comedic, it's probably not going to be a funny movie. And if you get to say, oh yeah, I forgot to make it funny. Like it's not going to be funny. And I think it's just going to feel like the first one where it's like, oh, we tried to make it one thing, but it didn't really come off like that. And I think, Yours are just going to feel weirdly tonally inconsistent. See, I be- sorry, I, I don't think that's true because when you're pitching something, you don't necessarily get the character interactions. But if you know the movie, like the Peanut Butter Falcon movie that I'm referencing, if you hear like how much the movie takes place with just the characters, 
a trailer for that movie will instantly tell you what the tone of that movie is because you're going to get the dialogue between them and it's witty and it's funny and it's sweet. Um, and it's, you know, it's a sweet romance. And then you've got, uh, you know, it's a more progressive. There's a lot of, a lot more uh, gay and lesbian and anything romance rom-coms out there that are on Netflix and that are coming out anywhere. And people are really enjoying those now. I think this is going to fall into that category and have a really good solid audience and a much bigger base than yours, I think. Um, and yours to me, the, the, the details you brought up, the specific details of your entire plot sounds very, very drawn out, very slow, very methodical. And it sounds like something that would bore many audiences. All right. I, I think I know where I'm going. Yeah, I know. I know what I'm going. Johnny, or before we go, uh, I'll let, I'll let, I'll, we'll give our rulings and then I'll do the live comment. Okay. My thing with it is both of these sound like movies I wouldn't see. Bobby's does sound like Carol, which was unwatchably boring and already had Kate Blanchett in it. And that's what Joe and I both immediately thought of when Bobby was pitching it. And I know he backtracked on his pitch and said it was going to be. It's not backtracking when it's written it's on my page. It's backtracking when you don't set that up well originally in the pitch. Like it's not backtracking because I know the best way to pitch your tone in this show is your director. And the tone of Peanut Butter Falcon is not like dry, boring, bland movie. It does have some comedy. So I understand what you're saying with it. I don't think you just put that in there because we asked, but I think you needed to actually sell that more in your pitch because I didn't get that whatsoever. Yours sounded like a really, really shitty version of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is an incredible movie, and your movie just made me want to watch that instead of yours. Whereas Tristan's, it, it was a very on-the-nose. Um, it did sound like Fences, which I thought was also unwatchable, just like Carol. Both movies were up for Oscars because they're boring play movies, but I think at the very base of what I can go off of is which movie is more relevant today. And I think Tristan's is actually relevant to the issues today. LGBTQ, obviously very important and still ongoing, but it's more socially acceptable nowadays for, you know, at least gay marriage that's, you know, allowed and everything. And, and there are some certain people that are against it, but it's a smaller fight and less relevant to today's culture than the, the movie Tristan pitched. So I'm going to go with the movie that it's at least more relevant to the time. So I'm going to go with Tristan on this one, because I think there are just better movies made about what Bobby pitched, um, including Carol, which was boring, but it at least got Oscar recognition and Portrait of a Lady on Fire and movies that will always hold up um, like the Danish girl, even like, I feel like movies like that, are going to stand the test of time. And I think Bobby's will get lost in that. And Tristan's is at least about something relevant now. Um, and just is more meaningful to a certain audience. So I'm going to go with Tristan on this, even though I didn't love you to pitch. All right. I, I agree with uh, Johnny that uh, Tristan's is more relevant. The only thing I'll disagree with, because I, once he explained the peanut butter Falcon and I looked at that and I looked at his cast I understood more where his comedy was. And I think if you were to describe peanut butter Falcon to somebody, it would be hard to like pitch it as a comedy and not so much a serious movie. So I think but you I still have that. professional wrestling and everything in there. Yeah. You have some moments you can explain that yeah. are going to have more. But Rose Byrne, as soon as you see her, she's done um, plenty of comedy. I mean, so you get that. Done in comedies, there. But so is Kate Blanchett, even though she was more dramatic. Exactly. Part, so I don't know. 
And then my thing with, and I agreed a lot with what Bobby said of like, I just don't know if the people that disagree with like the whole Black Lives Matter movement or just like the messages are very on the nose. And I don't know if it's really going to, a Denzel Washington basically like play type movie is really going to attract anyone. And then it's supposed to be this serious political movie. And then Sean Connery, a Scottish guy is the president, which doesn't really, I don't know if that works. And so it's close. And I honestly thought Tristan was going to win at first, but I think I have to give the point to Bobby, which makes it three to one. And so it's a game point. And then our one last, one live comment that I agree with, and it says, Tristan, every movie doesn't need social commentary, which I think has been saddling you a little bit with your pitches, where I feel like it, some of the commentary goes against like either your plot or your director or something. And so that's Unlike kind of Bobby's, it had no social commentary? I guess. had some. Why is it critical for me to use it, but not for him? Yours was very on the nose, I think, is the, the yeah. main so thing. So having a gay senator who's a Republican that doesn't want to be gay, like, that's not on the nose? That's super on the nose and relevant maybe 10 years ago. Like, I don't think Bobby's movie is very relevant, but I can see what someone's saying. I feel saying, like it maybe. wasn't so much. It was close, but it wasn't like. Yeah. Yeah. Those, I, mean, I, 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 mean, didn't, I didn't love either of If something's important, you put your movie based on it. Like, I would never yeah. hold that against Tristan, even though, yeah. like, yeah. what the yeah. person was saying, I think, for you, Tristan, is that. I think every episode that you've competed on at least the last four times you've competed, have probably had at least one or two pitches about the black lives matter movement, but like, fuck that guy. All right. Yeah, It's um, called the remake. Yeah. You're making it today. You're going to make right. it about relevant issues. Yeah. That's all personal. Like you're making yeah. the movies now. So it's exactly. like, what, what do you want to pitch? Like, that's all fine with me. If, if the movies you love have social commentary, those are the movies you want to pitch. And those are the movies you want to make. So like, yeah, every movie could have it if that's what you want them to have. Yeah, just I just as, think, if you don't want it to have it, it doesn't have to have it. Yeah, I just think if when it just you know it fits, make sure your director fits and all the plot fits and everything. Like it was close. Like I thought, like I think it was, I do this think this was the, the most out of all of Tristan's movies that do have political stuff behind them. I'm usually on board for him, and this one I felt like was the most shoehorned because yeah. this movie didn't have anything to do with that originally. And uh, I think yours, I think Bobby's actually did stay more relevant to what the plot was. And I think you're straight away from that, but you know, if anyone just pitched a normal love story, they would have won or a comedy like that would have been a very simple thing. And I think Tristan, that was a losing the point rather than winning or like Bobby. Yeah. But Tristan, what do we got next? You got to claw back again. I'll go for one that has no political commentary. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Red rocket from 1996. And I'll go first on this one. I gotta move stuff around. Red Rocket. There we go. Red Rocket. There we go. All right. Uh, Red Rocket came out in 1996. It's got a 3% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Danny Cannon, coming off of directing Judge Dredd, made this sci-fi horror film that tells a fictionalized version of events about Yuri Gagarin, played by Nicolas Cage, and his first orbit of Earth, where he gets sucked through a portal and launched into deep space. It's widely considered Cage's worst performance. His thick Russian accent did not help. Uh, Cage was nominated for a Razzie, but the film took home the prize of Worst Picture. All right, uh, I'll go first. Like go you it. said, 3% Rotten Tomatoes. People hate this movie, but 
honestly, I love this movie. You know, I mean, I'm a sucker for bad movies, I guess. But Nick Cage is like so ridiculous in this movie that it becomes good. Like his accent just becomes like the entertainment factor of the movie. And I think uh, it's just really a fun, ridiculously good, like popcorn, drink a beer while you watch it movie. (laughs) So I'm still going to kind of go for that like fun sci-fi tone. But I'm going to make it a little bit more of like a hard sci-fi to appeal to people who didn't like the first one all that much. Uh, so I use my rule as you must resurrect the career of an actor. And my actor that I resurrected is Crispin Glover, who obviously played uh, George McFly in Back to the Future. And he was in Friday the 13th and not much else after that. He kind of left acting. He didn't really get a lot of roles after that. And my director is Damien Chazelle, who did First Man, that kind of captures like the. I want to take that hard uh, sci fi esque thing of, of First Man, but turn it into more of a sci fi, not just like a, oh, astronauts doing science thing. So we still have that sci fi fictional history element from the original. Uh, and Glover uh, does an accent, of course, not as intensely ridiculous as Nick Cage's, but I think you have to have a little bit of an accent when you're attributing that kind of a movie. And this is not going for a super serious tone, so I think it fits for him to do a little bit of an accent. And he followed a space race from the side of Russia in the opening act, but with additional fiction of anomalies in space being the true motivator for the space race. So the governments of the world are uh, keeping the potential of this sort of extraterrestrial effect a secret as the world superpowers are all trying to be the first to go to space and bring back the evidence of space life. So Yuri, uh, upon arriving at the Met Anomaly in his first launch to space, is pulled through a, ro- a wormhole and brought to a future. Uh, he brought to the future. He crashes back to an Earth where we learn that Russia won the space race and revealed uh, the alien kind of uh, anomaly to the world and it inspired a third world war that turned to the nuclear collapse of humanity. So the Earth is now post-apocalyptic and led by a Russian dictator. Uh, he's and. Yuri himself has become kind of a legend among man as the as the one who discovered the anomaly and led and that directly led to the Russian takeover. And so Yuri teams up with the resistance to build himself another ship, vowing to return to the wormhole and hopefully go back in time to fix the future. So we follow this sort of adventure of Yuri in this nuclear post-apocalypse that he indirectly caused himself, and he's working with the resistance against his own country to build up himself a spaceship. And in the finale, he flies out and returns to space in his makeshift spaceship made with the resistance. And he flies back through the wormhole and teleports back to where he came from just a few moments after he disappeared. And the Russians come over the comms. They're going to have Nick Cage cameo as like the, you know, the Houston, we have a problem speaker of, of Russia. So he's going to ask him, like, what happened? Where did you go? And he's going to say, oh, there was some kind of like techno- technology glitch, but there's nothing up here. We didn't see anything weird. Uh, there's no aliens. There's no wormholes. And he lies to the government and goes back down and says there was nothing. And that's that's the end. He decides to lie to prevent the nuclear apocalypse that he witnessed throughout the movie. That's my pitch. All right. Uh, Bobby, what is your red rocket? All right. We went very different ways with this. So basically, if you're going to take a movie like this that's, that's so bad, uh, you know, with its reputation – and remake it. Um, I feel like it's a challenge for a director like Denis Villeneuve to turn this into a serious movie. So uh, I'm gonna. My director is Denis Villeneuve, and my star, my Yuri, is gonna be played by Michael Fassbender. 
um, and he's going to be my lead. Uh, so my story is that countries of the world are starting to use space exploration to evaluate the Earth on how far it is from ending due to environmental factors. Um, on his orbit, he's sucked through a portal into deep space with uh, multiple planets to explore. Um, he explores them and encounters uh, alien creatures, so he finds alien life, but you get kind of the horror aspect that was from the first movie. Um, and on one of these planets, he discovers an element uh, that could be used to create unlimited fuel without using up Earth's resources. Um, so the third act of this movie after he finds this is he is desperate to make his way back to Earth. Um, he uses his calculations because he is a like an astronaut uh, engineer type guy to find out what portal could take him closer to Earth. Um, but during his journey, when he gets back in the third, uh, during the third act, um, the his ship is struck by a meteor or like a small, you know, small space rock, uh, which damages it and makes it impossible for a human to survive re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. Uh, so once he gets to Earth, um, he knows that he has no chance, but he wants to give Earth a chance to uh, find this element and to uh, save itself, basically, for the humans to save Earth. So he records a message, which he's been using throughout the movie on his, you know, his video diary about this element where it's located on the ship in the safe. Um, and he goes out and fixes the rocket boosters. And this is my tearjerker ending where he sends the ship into earth without knowing whether or not he, you know, they, anyone was even going to find it. Um, but he knew that it, other, instead of trying to save himself, the best thing is to try to save earth. So he drifts, drifts off into space as the ship lands on earth. And I'll get more into the tone. Cause there's like, Elements of, you know, it's a, it's a Denis Villeneuve movie, but the actual interactions that he has uh, and stuff like that. Interesting. All right, I got a question for you guys, because I, I think both of you somewhat answered this with your pitch, but it was something I was wondering going into it because I wanted you to address the famous ending of the original movie. The original movie had a very ambiguous ending. Will your movie be ambiguous, or will you actually get some clarity on... Um, whether or not uh, Yuri finds his daughter. So I'll, mine, first, uh, yeah. I, uh, I'll just say, I mine's a little ambiguous just because, like, sure, he prevented this one terrible event from happening, but we don't know, like, the anomaly is still out there, so there very easily could be someone who could go out and find that again. And I wanted to leave that a little bit open-ended, but I definitely wanted to conclude the story within this movie. Yeah, and so with mine, so definitely, um, like this one, he's not trying to find his daughter, but it's still, he wants, Denis Villeneuve wanted to at least show how to do that ending in a good way. So that's how he does the ambiguous. He does send it off to Earth, but we'd never see if they get it, if they make the actual element or use it at all, and he dies in space. So it's just, it, the ending is just hope. It's just, it's on his hope. Okay. All right. and, uh... Joe, what do you got? My question for both of you. Uh, in the original, Yuri Gagarin takes out an evil alien base as back in the USSR by the Beatles plays. Uh, this is the only scene from the movie that anyone really remembers. Uh, I don't, it doesn't really sound like either of you have anything like this in your movie, so I just want to know why. Uh, Tristan, uh, you can go first. Okay. I'll say, like, I... Mine still has kind of like the fun tone of the original. Like he's going back to this post-apocalypse Russian nuclear war. Like that's probably not something realistic, but it, I wanted to, you know, you don't want to have like the 
the action montage type thing in this movie. I wanted to be a little bit more grounded, but still be still be fun and still be kind of campy and kind of fun and ridiculous. So I didn't go for that kind of like big, big music montage action scene of mine. Okay. All right. Before you guys fight, address this in your fights. But, you know, I feel like the, the one thing, too, that this movie is so famous for is that infamous gif and meme of Nicolas Cage from this movie in his astronaut suit. Um, why a movie that's best known for that specific meme that everybody knows, like, why are you going to go see this movie taken more seriously? Especially when it's called Red Rocket, which as soon as South Park made their episode about Red Rockets, that's all it's really known for. Why do you both feel to go so serious with your movies? And Bobby can answer my question. Yeah. So so with yours, with uh, uh, Joe... Um, like I did say, he he experiences the aliens on the other planets. So it's, he doesn't have like a like a song playing in the background as he takes these things out. But it's just the fact that he is he has to survive and takes out you know some of these aliens along the way. It's just kind of an homage to that scene without being so, so ridiculous because of the type of the mo- type of movie that they're telling. Okay. Um, and then so I address Johnny's as we fight. Uh, basically, I mean that's kind of Denis Villeneuve is he likes to challenge himself. Um, Blade Runner is an impossible sequel to make. Um, Dune has always been told as like, you can't actually adapt that well into movie. And that's what he's making. This would just be a challenge for him. It's like, can I make this into a relevant movie? Um, And just the actors that that Michael Fassbender in it alone, the trailers with the visuals and the aliens, his directorial style will create a great trailer, uh, which will sell the movie. Um, and I mean, the rocket is going to be red. So, Hey, it's, you know, it, you, you have those, cause he's, he's, it's gonna, it's not quite as comedic as the Martian, but he has his video diaries throughout and he's a little, you know, he has his little funny moments in there. It's not like, uh, dry, 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 because that would be ad Astra. Uh, so you have to have a compelling, you have to have a compelling lead. Uh, so that's going to sell the movie for me. It's just the compelling character and the, the visuals along with the, the journey. Yeah, I went, mine I don't think is all that serious, like it's still kind of fun and kind of goofy, like Crispin Glover is this Russian astronaut who finds like this Russian post-apocalypse nuclear war, I think that's kind of like a fun, almost like, uh, you know, other world sci-fi movie, and sure we know Damon Chazelle as the director, but he also uh, was a writer on 10 Cloverfield Lane, which I think is sort of like this cool other world sci-fi movie, where they have like these characters who are in this, in this post- apocalypse type world and we're we're seeing like this strange events that are unfolding around them and i wanted to kind of go for that where like we're seeing it's kind of a goofy world and they're having like this almost mad max style like post-apocalypse things are kind of kind of funny in the way that they're like very exaggerated but i think that yeah. Oh, yeah, you are. You are you can I, I was just, I had a, so I think for me, there's a big disconnect between your director and the tone of the movie that you're pitching. Um, Whiplash, uh, First Man, La La Land, like La La Land is the most maybe, you know, comedic in a way or like more, a little bit more lighthearted, but that's still a very serious movie with like dramatic takes on music. You're pitching this corny in a way homage to the first one. And you got a director who does Oscar movies with a very serious tone with, um, you know, some said verse man was too dry. Uh, you know, that, that you're taking him and putting him in a movie that I don't think fits his style. Even though he wrote 10 Cloverfield Lane, that movie is still very serious. 
And then the studio came in and said that they had to make it a Cloverfield movie. So they added the alien ending. That wasn't even him. Um, so he wrote a thriller in a bunker. Uh, so I, I don't think that fits. I also think that when you have a movie that's, you know, already memeable, putting Crispin, Glum Crispin Glover in there, you're trying to recreate the meme, kind of. I don't think Crispin Glover can carry the movie in a way that's actually entertaining and that isn't the original already. I think you're kind of making the first one uh, just with a different plot. You kind of have the the Mark Wahlberg Planet of the Apes uh, twist, even though it's partway through the movie. Um, you, I, I don't understand why your movie's being made when the first one already exists because it sounds too ridiculous just like the first one. Well, I think Damien Chazelle would be the perfect choice for this. Honestly, I think he would be the one to revive a career of someone like Crispin Glover. And I think he would be able to elevate this movie from you, you tried to call it like a B movie or something, but I think that you put Damien Chazelle on it. He has a really, really strong camera work. He knows how to capture like in first man, he captured like that gritty, like stuck in the, stuck in the ship kind of very hard sci-fi but i think you give him that that feel but you also let him go loose you let him go fun you let him really because la la land like sure it has some serious moments but it's definitely a fun movie like it's, it's supposed to make you feel good and there's big musical numbers things like that like it's not a serious film he's having fun with it and i want this to be him having fun and i think crispin glover would be a really fun role to put in that front and center and bring him back to stardom because i think he's great in Back to the Future, I think he's really good in Friday the 13th Part 4, too. He's like the highlight of that movie for sure. And I think that this would be a really fun, uh, just, I don't know, an exciting adventure movie for Damien Chazelle to do. And I think that he's done a lot of these serious Oscar contenders, but I want him to do something fun. I want him to get out of that, like, oh, we're going to give everybody Oscar. It's going to be very dry and very serious. I want him to just be like, okay, let's take this skillful artistic direction that I can use my camera work that's very detailed oriented and we put that into like a fun sci-fi world and that's exactly what I wanted to go for I think Damien Tizel is a great choice for this so here's the thing we both chose two of the top directors working today I think you gave Damien Chazelle a movie that is better suited for a more mainstream director that's going to be putting out like MCU movies more fun um, and I just feel like I pitched a movie that fits my director more. It's very, it's serious. It's, uh, it's based on, uh, environmental issues. You have an ambiguous type of ending. You have a, a journey with one man trying to survive. Um, and I think that fits a lot better. I think yours does not fit Damien Chazelle, even though he said you want him to do that. He's never done it. Um, and I would rather have him use his talents on something, like I would see, I would like to see Damien Chazelle's take on the movie I pitched a little bit more serious. Like even it's, it's adventurous. They're going out through space and, and different things that Damien Chazelle has not done. But um, to make a movie that you're basically taking Damien Chazelle and putting him on the first movie to try to change it, to make the camera work better. You mean like a remake? But you don't want it to be the same movie with a director that doesn't fit. If you're going to do your pitch, you need to, I mean, Michael Bay would fit your pitch better, honestly. And I would have actually liked that because I want to like see my director get out movie. of his comfort zone and out of his wheelhouse. Like we've seen uh, Danny Villeneuve do sci-fi like so many times already, you know, Arrival, he's Blade Runner, he's it. doing Dune. I don't want to see him just do another sci-fi movie, you know, but I want to, I would like to see him do something different, not a remake of something. But he's also never do done. He's never done a sci-fi movie that takes this much, takes place this much in space um, on these other planets. Dune is going to be on other planets. We haven't seen Dune yet, 
So, you know, I don't know how much of that is space travel and all that and everything, but this is like a, um, a more adventurous version of uh, Alfonso Cuaron's gravity. Gravity is just only survival and it's just her like or orbiting earth. But I'd like to see the visuals of what Damien or what uh, um, Denis Villeneuve can do on a spaceship, other planets, aliens. Um, that's more grounded than like Dune is like a sci-fi epic type thing. This is a little bit more what could actually exist out in the, out in the, out in space, out in the world and how we can save earth. So I, I like, like arrival. Like we've already seen him do like, but I don't want to see him just earth, do another it's thing. just about communication and how, how language can uh, create time travel and, and all that. Like that's a very, very different movie than the one I'm pitching. All right. I, I think I have my mind. I think I've heard enough Johnny, here. Johnny, Johnny, you call this one. Okay, give me your thoughts then first, and then I will make the call. All right. So my thing is, like, you have two directors. You have a director that's shown he's very capable, but put in a situation for types of movie he's never made before. And then you have a director who's basically made this movie kind of different ways. Like, sometimes it's been on Earth, sometimes it's been in space. He's, like, got Dune. It's just he's been doing sci-fi recently. It's like, do we need to see him do another sci-fi movie? and then you got to the cast and it's michael fassbender who i feel like has kind of gone away for a while uh first crispin glover who's also gone away for a lot longer time but could potentially have a comeback with the right director with the right script and so it goes and but if we were to compare rules like crispin glover Good, good actor who hasn't been in anything recently versus like a tearjerker ending. And I don't know if um, just like making the decision of like, like Michael Fassbender is not like a good, like, I don't know how to explain, like emotional actor, if that makes sense. Like he's like, I don't know if Michael watching Michael, Michael Fassbender making that choice of like, do I sacrifice myself for humanity? Is anything that's like, tearjerker if that makes sense so it's super super close but i'm kind of leaning towards tristan and so just because i want to see that more balls to the wall true to the original version i have some notes here so dune and blade runner while not huge successful movies were cult followings dune at least had a giant book the original movie had a cult following which was you know you know panned critically but both are very, very famous franchises. So I understood Blade Runner 2049, Denny Villeneuve taking it. That movie is incredible. Love it to death. I'm obsessed with Blade Runner 2049, whereas I think the original kind of sucks. I don't care for the original Blade Runner. But Bobby's movie sounded more like Arrival, and I think that movie's trash. Like, I think that movie is so bad. I hate Arrival. Denny Villeneuve... Every single movie he's made is fantastic, except Arrival sucks. So, Bobby's movie sounds more like Arrival. I'm a little worried about that. And Denny Villeneuve would never in a million years make the movie Red Rocket. He would never, ever do it. I understand him doing Dune. I understand him doing Blade Runner 2049, because at least those have cult followings. Red Rocket doesn't, and it's a stupid movie, and he's not going to do that to hurt his career. I'd rather see Denny Villeneuve do like the next James Bond movie than that. The problem with Tristan's is at least Denny Villeneuve has made something science fiction before. 
And I know that if he did make a movie as stupid as Red Rocket, it would at least be more watchable um, than a lot of other directors. Now, Bobby said something here that, oh, because Damien Chazelle's never showed that he could do anything else before, so I don't think he could make your movie Michael Bay is a better fit. I don't think so, because I wrote for Tristan's pitch, it's basically Planet of the Apes meets The Man in the High Castle, which I think are both very serious, very fantastic uh, uh, areas to work with, and his kind of does that. Maybe Crispin Glover is a weird fit for it, but you have to resurrect a director, an actor's career, and I think there are much worse choices than what he made. My reason for Damien Chazelle working for Tristan's movie is Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle made Train Spotting and he made Slumdog Millionaire, but he also made Sunshine, which is one of my top five sci-fi movies ever made. I think it's fantastic. It's way out of Danny Boyle's wheelhouse, even though he has worked with some areas of science fiction with uh, 28 Days Later. So I'm going for Tristan on this because I think his pitch just sounds more interesting. And it's something that I'd rather see Damien Chazelle do than I'd rather see. I'd rather see Damien Chazelle go out of his comfort zone than Danny Villeneuve waste his career away making this movie. So I think Tristan gets this point. So it's three okay. to two. Three to two. All right. Um, so I'm going to go with, uh, I wanted to come down to that. <laughs> yeah. I know that feeling. Let's go with Who's Your Daddy. God, you guys are putting off the movie I want to hear the most. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> but I am excited. Um, so uh, Tristan can go first on this one, but I'm going to the bathroom while you read the, um, the uh, description for this one. All right. It's That's a short call. description, so we'll, 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 we'll just bullshit. So uh, Who's Your Daddy <laughs> came out in 1994. It got a 32% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a body-switching comedy of a lifetime. Joe Johnston directed this movie about a new father played by Ted Danson switching bodies with his infant son. It's... Tristan, have you seen this movie? I have. I wanted to know what you guys thought of the scene where Ted Danson shits himself. Yeah, I think that scene is one of the best. I like this movie a lot. I, I think... I think this movie is very underrated, and I think Ted Danson's really funny in it. I like this more than like the Three Men and a Baby movies, yeah. even though I know those are probably more critically acclaimed. This is a movie I grew up with more. This movie yeah. reminds me very much of um, shit. Ted Danson did a movie where he was like a dad, but he was also like a like in a gang or something like that. Oh, Bobby, my okay, I gotta look this up. But yeah, like this movie would have been way more popular if Dumb and Dumber didn't come out, which came out the same year because you had that same scene of uh Jeff or uh fucking what's his face? Jeff Daniels like shitting on the toilet and that became super iconic. But yeah, the scene yeah. of Ted Danson shitting himself. Would well you had you had Jim Carrey just rule the year nineteen ninety four where I feel like every other comedy that year really got Yeah, forgotten. like a Ted Danson movie comedy in nineteen ninety four is not gonna be popular when you have a Jim Carrey dumb and dumber coming out that same year. Here's the other thing, which funny thing from the same year, Ted Danson killed it this year. The other movie I grew up with, it was Who's Your Daddy with Ted Danson, and it was um Getting Even with Dad, which was one of Bobby and his car movies that came out the same year with Ted Danson. That movie is also a, a forgotten treasure. I I, uh, I think that movie, if I watched it today, might not hold up. And maybe this one doesn't too, but I know because we grew up with it, I, I think this movie uh, is pretty funny. So I'm interested to see what you guys yeah, do. And then you that. had 
look who's talking come out the same time which definitely was more popular than this so yeah yeah and it was like it was like the week follow-ups to honey i shrunk the kids from uh joe johnson and kind of the week follow-up of um the three men and a baby and three men and the little lady and like that, that whole franchise, you know, this was a few yeah. years later. And yeah. I just had like a crisis moment where I was like, did I use a rule on this one? And then I'm like, looked down like, Oh yeah, I forgot about that. But I was like, wait, did I forget something? All right. So uh, who's, who's going to go first? Uh, I'd say, uh, you know, wait, did, I think Tristan went first last time. So I think I'll go actually. Okay. Um. So, Who's Your Daddy? Mine is going to be directed by Jorma Tacone and uh, Akiva Schaefer, who directed Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping. Um, and it's going to star Andy Samberg, um, who is the Ted Danson role. Uh, who his, so he's going to be playing a baby and then vo- uh, voicing in, you know, uh, the thoughts of the baby. Um, Kristen Bell is going to be his wife. Uh, Roman Griffin Davis from Jojo Rabbit is going to be their older son. Uh, and then my rule is that the nanny is going to be Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, who started a nanny business after the, um, uh, the events of, of Mrs. Doubtfire. So mine is basically, it's, it's a goofy comedy where Andy Samberg gets to act like a baby and voice the thoughts of a baby. He uses his time as a baby to realize uh, what he needs to improve on as a father. Uh, that then he can switch back. Uh, the baby has to guide baby. Uh, so the baby has to guide uh, adult Sandberg through work um, and life in general. Uh, he's a manager at an office. Um, so you get to see Andy Sandberg being really goofy, which is what he's really, he's good at. He's really funny. He making, you know, noises and, you know, trying to figure out how do I talk? Cause he's kind of, he's developed that, but he doesn't quite know how to do it. So the baby's trying to figure it out and try to help him. Um, you get to see a cat and mouse game between, uh, Robin Williams and Mrs. Doubtfire and a baby trying, or like a child, like trying to escape to go help the adult. Um, so you get the funny interactions there, um, that he's trying to evade them. Uh, and then, yeah, it's, it's just, it's a funny movie with that. It's, it's a simple premise. I don't really need to explain a ton, but basically he gets, he, he gets switched he needs to figure out how to be a better dad. And then now as a baby, Andy Samberg's like, I need to not have myself get fired and lose my wife and this crazy stuff because there's a baby in an adult's body. Uh, so there you go. There's my movie. All right. Uh, Tristan. All right. Uh, for mine, I used the same rule, actually. I used a, um, a character made famous by Robin Williams, but I used a different character. I used his genie character from Aladdin. Oh. Uh, <laughs> my writer and director is David Wayne, who directed Wet Hot American Summer. Uh-huh. And I have a new father, played by Paul Rudd. His name is Matt Sawyer, and he's struggling tra- to transition from his free-willing youth to fatherhood. His wife is Amy Poehler. Uh, she's trying to inspire him to connect with his family and move on from his younger days. He works a dead-end job in a pawn shop owned by David Hyde Pierce's Mr. Kelly. But he desperately wants another job. He hates it. He's not paid well. He hates doing it. And then one day a mysterious man arrives at the shop to sell him an ancient lamp that he claims to have recovered from a trip to the Middle East. Matt examines the lamp and unleashes the genie, played by Robin Williams, who promises to grant him three and only three wishes. He wastes his first wish instantly by accident when he exclaims, Oh my God, I wish I wasn't at work right now. And suddenly he appears back home. He says, God damn it, <laughs> I've only got two wishes left. 
So he then wishes to give himself a better, higher paying job at the advertising firm of his dreams. So there he meets his new boss, played by Bradley Cooper. He's a charming but arrogant and rich owner of the company. And despite no experience, Matt is given a leading role as an ad executive because of the powers of a genie. And that night he returns home to give his wife the good news. And they celebrate, you know, they drink, they they hook up, they have a great, great night. And then they're awoken in the middle of the night by the crying baby. So Matt says, "You know what? I'm going to go up and I'm going to get the, I'm going to I'm going to comfort the baby. It's my turn." So Matt comforts the child, but he's struggling to make it stop crying, and he he says, "His final wish is I wish I could I could connect with my son." And he goes back to sleep. The next morning, he wakes up and he's swapped with the infant son. So now the body of adult Matt is now occupied by the mind of baby Matt, and Adult Matt is trapped inside the body inside the body of the baby. So adult Matt is now like occupied by the baby and going to work every day and trying to talk with his coworkers, even though he only has like a baby's intuition and a baby's understanding of the world and the baby's vocabulary. And adult Matt, while he's in the body of the baby, his mission is to try and find the lamp again in order to wish himself back. But since he's a baby, he can't talk. So he only hears his thoughts through narration. And the genie's floating around saying, man, I can't understand you. I can't hear what you're saying. You're only a baby. You're not speaking English. And so Matt's body's at work, occupied by the baby. And he's uh, has a thinking and communication abilities of a baby. He's kind of just like wandering around and aimlessly interacting. If you've seen Twin Peaks, they return. I'm kind of going for like the Dougie uh, tone of that, where he's kind of like walking through life, like with very limited vocabulary, he interacts with his coworkers in short bursts of noise and like a few single syllable words that he's learned. But the coworkers and owners are struck by his genius wisdom. Uh, they're inferring genius marketing ideas from the simple grunts of the child, and he's quickly raised through the company to become a star of the company. So there's lots of good comedy here. Uh, the baby Matt, in tribute to the scene from the original, is uh, pooping himself, and we have the narration of Paul Rudd saying, "Like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this," and then his wife has to come and clean him up. And that's pretty fun. And we have adult Matt, but adult Matt with the baby brain struggling to socialize and understand the grace of the normal life. But it's sort of like a parody of office life. So people are still like, oh, yeah, great point, Matt. And like really going along with his his logic here. So eventually the baby uh, has to reach out to the wife. And the wife, the baby kind of like kicks the lamp over the side of the crib. And the wife finds it and picks it up. And she's like, oh, what's this? And then. The genie comes out and they sort of communicate. The genie tells you like, oh, Matt swapped bodies with this baby. We have to get them back. So she kind of has to, she uses her wish to reunite the two of them and then swap them back. And we see they've, even though they've had this crazy misadventure, Matt's still in a better place than he was before. He has this great job. He has a good position. And everyone around him is none the wiser that he swapped with a baby. And that's my pitch. All right. Uh, Johnny, do you got a question for them? Yeah, I think they both kind of answered it with the with the people they they cast. So I'm going to change it up a little bit from what I originally intended because I just thought that would be a good one. Um, the original movie, Ted Danson is a stay at home dad and his wife is away at on a work trip. So other than the grocery store scene, you don't really have him leaving the house and coming back. So you only have the one scene of him driving, which is very entertaining. 
But how do you guys explain a man with an infant brain driving to and from work on the regular throughout your movie? Because it sounds like both of you guys have that problem of doing that every single day. So mine, mine takes place in New York City. So um, he takes the subway all the time. And so you kind of, so in my movie, when they switch, um, the baby like hasn't the adult brain just is not, it's not formed. So it's like, has general idea of how to walk and how to like do certain things, but just, it's like kind of as the movie goes, he's slightly learning it. So the baby, uh, the baby version of Andy Samberg is going to be doing subtle things to try to get him to go there, like pushing, like point, like little things that he can do as a baby to get him to go to the right place and do the right thing. Um, and then that he just lot like tries to lock him in the office and you have very limited dialogue with people trying to get in and talk with him and stuff. So it's like, that's how you kind of explain it is basically public transit and that like, he's not going to drive a car. Um, so he can even walk to work. All right. I like that answer. Tristan. Yeah, got? I gave mine. So like the, the baby in the adult body has like sort of like a flesh memory. So he just kind of like wandering in the direction I had yeah. him walk to work. So he just kind of like walks from the house to the office and he's just, he has the baby mind, but he still has like this flesh memory because babies have like adult brains. They're just kind of like not there yet. So I want to see like he's just kind of has that initial reaction of, oh, this is where I'm supposed to go. And he kind of follows people like if he, he sees people in suits like him walking this direction. So he just kind of starts walking that direction and like happenstance brings him into the right office. It's kind of like a serendipity kind of movie where there's these like I said, he's interacting with coworkers and they're all kind of like wild by his ideas. So I think kind of the fun of this movie is like you bring in that like happenstance serendipity of these characters happen to do what they need to do in the right times. And it's kind of really fun and funny for me, at least I really like that. in like a comedy like this. All right. My question for uh, Bobby is like in the original version, it's never revealed how or why Ted Danson's character in a sun switch body. So like, did you just plan on sticking with that? And you're just like, Hey, we're not going to reveal it. We're just going to. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's basically like, it just, you're at the beginning is going to kind of show his struggle as being a, a like con- being a parent a little bit, like, you know, in a comedic way, but it kind of shows like he needs a way to change something up. Um, so then all of a sudden he wakes up and he's switched with his kid and he doesn't know when he can switch back, but he just, he's like, I need to do anything I can to do it. Once he realizes why he's having troubles, so like watching um, how his other son interacts like with the nanny and things and like, and the mom, and he realizes his, his like problems, that's when he switches back. So it's never explained, but it's like he learns his lesson and it switches. All right. And then Tristan, like, why, why did you decide, I mean, I understand you had to use this rule somewhere, but was there a specific reason you wanted to explain why they switched bodies when the original didn't and make it so much a part of the key plot of the movie? Well, I think modern movies are really don't want to have plot holes. You know, people on the internet will tear apart things that don't make sense. And you have like channels like CinemaSins that will be like, oh, why doesn't this make sense? Why doesn't this make sense? And I think it's important to have explanations in the movie of why things are happening. And I also wanted to make the swapping like the primary plot focus of the movie. So getting back to the genie and making the genie help him get back to where they've been before. I think that's that's what's interesting about this. All right. And then I guess I have one other question for you in regards to the movie is in Mrs. Doubtfire, like it's revealed like that it's a guy and then he makes a television show, but he 
outside of being a television show, like he's not like in hiding as Mrs. Doubtfire. And then the same with the genie in that at the end of Aladdin, like he's not a genie anymore. He's free. So I guess I want to know like how these are still. Yeah. Are you just saying like we're divorced from that original movie that these characters are from? Or how do you explain why the character is in a different situation than he is at the end of their respective movies? I don't think you need to go into it a ton because it, he's just the nanny, but basically my backstory and how I thought of it is that he made the show and he still plays Mrs. Doubtfire, but he misses taking care of children when he's like that. So he starts to offer that up as a side job to go along with the show. So people know the show and they, they trust him and they hire him as a nanny. So it's like, like he can do that every once in a while. Show, but with yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire. basically. So, you know, he's there okay. and that's, that's pretty much it. Okay. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I think Genie's like exist in this universe, and even though he was freed in the original Aladdin, like I still think that he's around and he's still granting wishes. And I think he would, he would be able to choose. Like, okay, I'm gonna, I still want to grant wishes. Like, that's fun for me. I don't think he would sit around and just hang out with Aladdin all day. Like, I think he would want to go around and like help people and grant their wishes. I also think like you don't necessarily have need to have it be like the exact Genie from Aladdin. I think like you could just make it the universe where like that you don't acknowledge Aladdin happening. It's just like Robin Williams is genie in this. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to acknowledge the original. You just have him as the genie coming out of the lamp. Yeah. Also it's been like thousands of years. No, anything could have happened. All right. Yeah. yeah, I'm, yeah fine with, I'm fine with those answers. It was just popped in my head. All right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fight it out. Make this a little quick. Cause I think I, I, Joe and I probably have a little bit, uh, we're leaning our, our ways already. So let's see what you guys got. Um, so I just think bringing in like a mystical element with the genie and focusing so much of the plot on just trying to get to the genie takes away from the um, intention of the original movie. And also like the moral of trying to be a better dad and connecting to your kids like yours. Um, he, at the end, just all of a sudden he like has this better job and has this better life. Uh, whereas mine sticks to um, he, none of that necessarily, like it doesn't, it's not like all of a sudden he has a much better life, but he understands his children more and sees what their daily stuff is going on, like with the other kid and, you know, interacting with the nanny and like how the mom and all that. So it's a little bit more, ha- has that moral and is just funny. I mean, Andy Samberg, um, both Andy Samberg and Paul Rudd are great leads for this. I think they're really good choices. But with the goofiness of having a baby in an adult's body trying to like do work, I feel like Andy Sandberg, Sandberg has the physical comedy uh, to do that very well. Um, he has a good yell. He has a very good scream. I think he can, you know, as, as he throw, if he throws a tantrum, and that would be a funny scene. Um, I just, I just like my pitch more simplistic rather than yours is very plot oriented for a for a kids movie. So that's that's where I'm going. I think Andy Sandberg is a little too ridiculous for this movie. I think he would. It feels like an SNL sketch to me. Like, I know you already used the SNL rule, but this feels like you almost, like, started using it here and then backtracked or something. Like, I think this sounds like something that would be funny for, like, five minutes on SNL. Like, oh, Andy Samberg's acting like a baby. Isn't that hilarious? But I don't think I'd be able to watch, like, a whole movie we say Andy Samberg acting like a baby. We say that about a lot, a lot of movies. It's like a go-to argument, and I don't think that holds bearing here for the type of movie that it is, personally. I mean, it's a... You... I mean, I think it's kind of self-explanatory. I don't know if you need me to defend it too much, but basically um, we have the similar premise, no matter what the premise is. I could say the same thing for your movie where it sounds like an SNL sketch where Robin Williams is, is guesting and he's a genie and then switches. I'm like, you, I, you can make that argument for a lot of movies. Um, and I feel like 
Andy Samberg's shown that he can lead movies and be a lot of different types of characters and, uh, and just, and be a, you know, he's not always the goofy, goofy, crazy, like SNL guy. He can do that when he wants to. And you're going to have moments of that because it's Andy Samberg and you need moments where a baby and adult body is ridiculous. So you need to show that. Um, Paul Rudd is best to me when he's a little more dry um, not being as wacky, he can be wacky and he can be good. But like my favorite Paul Rudd is when he's like witty and um, uh, sarcastic a little bit and like maybe even a little like naive and stuff, but not necessarily the big comedy of him, you know, or you're just taking away and not having as many comedic moments and he's just walking very dully around and that's not as interesting to me. Well, I think he'd be very naive. He's literally a baby in a man's body. Like he hasn't experienced the world as it is. And I think he's learning around him. He's seeing like, his coworkers act certain ways and he's sort of like learning these social graces a little bit. And then meanwhile, you're getting the adult Paul Rudd. He's in the baby. Uh, he's in the body of the baby. He's kind of learning to connect with like a baby's emotions. And I, the reason I had him come and comfort the baby while he's crying is because I think that you want to have that element of like the father sees the baby crying. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know how to understand like, what does this crying mean? And I think putting him in the body of the baby makes him understand like what, crying is expressing you know babies cry because they can't talk it's their yeah. only way of communicating and i think he can learn that lesson throughout this movie and learn how to see the crying and connect with it and learn how yeah. to and that's kind of i think we kind of both have that in our movies like that's kind of the whole premise that i kind of described of why he they switched and the lesson that he needs to learn um personally it just sounds like yours like if i'm just thinking of a movie and a premise like for a kid's movie like this I don't want it to be super heavy on plot and like, we need to get this object. We need to get to this thing. Um, it takes away from the fun of the movie to me. Uh, the genie in it is like, you have this big supernatural element and it, I don't know if that necessarily fits with the rest of the movie. It's just kind of fun to see Robin Williams as the genie. I don't know. It's, it, your movie sounds okay. I just feel like it's a little bit off um, and I just feel like mine fits and could be made and it would be a fun movie. Um, you get Robin Williams in a you know popular role like that, but not something that's super, so distracting as like a big CGI genie coming into this movie, which would like up the cost of it too, but that's just a production thing. But My problem um, with your yeah. rule usage is that that character could be literally, literally anyone. Like the fact that it's Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire adds nothing to the plot. That could just be like a non-sequitur nanny. And I think that the fact that I brought genie back and made him prominent is a good use of the rule like i want robin williams to be part of the movie i don't want him to just be like a random nanny character i feel but, like mrs doubtfire is barely even present in your plot at all she's just there to be like a device she's she been there as the nanny and she also had to learn a similar like robin williams had to learn a similar um thing in his movie so it's kind of a fun way to bring him into this one um but he's like there's a lot of like i said there's a lot of cat and mouse between the two of them which is a lot of fun uh, so he's throughout the entire movie. Uh, I think that kind of was, I thought that was a little bit more self-explanatory since it's cat and mouse. He has to escape and like, you know, he's and all that, but, um, I, I think I, I know where I know where I'm going with this. Joe, do you know your decision? Yeah, I think I have my, my idea of where I want to go. All right, well, let's do this. I'll do the, uh, I'll do the final deciding again. Joe, what do you, what do you got? Uh, if you were deciding on this, what right, would you this one, this one is super close for me. Um, uh, my thing is, I don't know about David Wayne as a director for this type of movie. He does more like he's a good comedic director for his tone, but I don't know if this Paul Rudd, Amy Poehler movie kind of fits that so well. 
Um, but also I like the inclusion as far as like the use of the rule. I kind of agree with what Tristan was saying at the end of like the genie and uh, is more needed for his movie. Granted, it could be any genie, but there's a super popular genie. Whereas like the Robin Williams is Mrs. Doubtfire. It's still kind of weird to me that like a guy that everyone knows is dressed as a woman comes in dressed as a woman and everyone's just like, okay with that. And it's not, I mean, it's different if it's like a trans person or something, but it's just like a guy who's like a straight heterosexual male dressed as a woman, like coming into their house as a nanny and everyone's just like, yeah, this, I don't know. It's just weird to me. So I'm going to go with, uh, uh, Tristan's with the, uh, genie and Paul Rudd version. Yeah, I, I think for me, whereas I really, really loved Bobby's pitch at first because I think Andy Samberg, to me, I was like, man, he can nail the acting like a baby and throwing the temper tantrums. And Bobby said he was going to throw temper tantrums. I was all excited for that. But I think Tristan fought back on that pretty well with the original movie. Ted Danson is like the everyman. He is like the serious dad who becomes the baby and that's what's more funny with it. And I think Paul Rudd is a better cast than that because I've seen Andy Samberg be over the top ridiculous more often than I've seen Paul Rudd do it. Um, but but I like, I, I think Mrs. Doubtfire fits for Bobby's movie because the cat and mouse would be fun. If what it, what it came down to me was my two favorite characters that Robin Williams ever played was the genie and Mrs. Doubtfire. Which one would I rather see if I could have Robin Williams repeat the performance of anything he's ever done? What would it be? And to me, it's the genie because, and it edges out Mrs. Doubtfire by, by a decent amount, even though I love Mrs. Doubtfire, but I'm going to go with Tristan because if I could have one chance to see Robin Williams repeat a character, it would be the genie over anything else. That is my dream. I would love to see him do that. So that was my tiebreaker because everything else in your movies, I think, I think is, uh, is very even. And I think my tiebreaker was only which character do I want to see more from, from him. So rule wise, I'm giving it to Tristan and we're tying this game up, going to game seven, baby. Oh boy. Yeah. This is going to be something. Great. <laughs> so we did. Yeah. Um, right, so, so uh, yeah, there's no choice, but I'll have you or, um, I'll have Tristan go first on this one. All right. All right. Let me go. So The Roach came out in 2003, got a 12% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, bitten by a radioactive cockroach. Nick Knack, played by Freddie Prince Jr., becomes a superhero with all of the powers of a cockroach. He must stop the villain known as Dr. Nuclear, played by Tim Curry, from starting World War Three. All right. Uh, I didn't even know this movie existed until you until like this came up in the conversation for the episode. So I was really interested in watching this, and twelve percent is pretty accurate. This movie is not good. <laughs> so I tried to turn the Roach into wow. a bit of a superhero parody. So I used the cast of SNL. Uh, Pete Davidson plays Nick Knack. Uh, he's a loner and a nerd who's working as an assistant uh, in a lab. The lab is working on nuclear testing in the tundra, far from many cities. 
And when a cockroach is accidentally exposed to the radiation of a testing, it becomes nuclear. It's pulsing green. It's pulsing green and spitting nuclear acid. And Nick, who's alone in the lab at night, is bit by the cockroach. He becomes like a, a sort of cockroach hybrid. He's acid spitting and he's kind of flying. Yeah, you know, he has the wings, just like the roach. You know, the roach. And uh, however, the roach who actually infected him uh, is become mutated now. It's sort of like this big, growing, increasingly big throughout the movie nuclear. They, it's called the nuclear insect. It's kind of a it's a villain from the roach comics. I had uh, looked that up. It's a, one of his popular villains. Uh, it's a half man, half roach, and I had them played by Kate McKinnon in a practical costume. She does a really good job of like transforming into characters and using costumes and makeup really well. So I wanted to go with her. I think she's easily the highlight of modern SNL. She's like hilarious and even the worst sketches. <laughs> and uh, Nick's in- love interest is played by Kristen Wiig, who's also a scientist working in the lab with him. And she's sort of like awkward kind of scientist type. And his boss is Colin Jost, who's sort of like this douchey, punchable, smart ass who's unreasonably hateable despite being super nice. I thought that was exactly in character with Colin Jost. You look at him, you're just like, that guy is nice, but I wouldn't mind punching him in the face. <laughs> that was such an accurate description. <laughs> and I have Beck Bennett as sort of like a friend. You know, I think Beck Bennett can do that sort of like, yeah, dude, yeah, you're a roach now. That's cool. And like, I would like that kind of, kind of, he's like totally along for the ride kind of friend. And I have him going on this adventure fighting Kate McKinnon's uh, uh, nuclear insect. And it's interesting too, because they're sort of like these foils of each other, where they're both sort of like these hybrids of human and insect, but they have these different motivations. Kate McKinnon wants to turn everyone into insects like she does in the comic book. And uh, the roach is there to kind of stop her and defend humanity. So they get this big final battle out in like, because it's set in Alaska, it's like in the Alaskan tundra, you know, and they have this big like snowy battle against each other. And ultimately he he sends her off into the into the cold void and she's out there to return again because she's like the main villain of the roach. So I don't want her to be totally gone from the franchise if they want to do another franchise. But he definitely defeats her. And to get this sort of tease at the end where he's set up with uh, this praying mantis character who also teams up with the roach in the comics and you get this tease that like oh are they going to do like a you know a, a shared universe and the praying mantis is played by a bill Hader, so you get like oh is bill Hader going to be a superhero movie and i would love to see that you know if he played the praying mantis it would be a cool way to build the universe outside of the mcu and the dcu with the roach so that's my pitch you get this really fun this basic hero origin story and action movie and then you get a setup at the end of what the universe could be in the future without limiting the movie itself all right and then i just have a really quick question who's your director oh yeah pull that up uh paul uh paul feig he directed a lot of snl episodes and i think he works well with the cast of snl okay all right bobby what do you got yeah you went away from the comics in a way that i did not expect uh especially from you uh Bobby, what is your pitch for The Roach? All right. uh, So my version of The Roach is going to be directed by Kevin Smith. Um, He's done movies with kind of this transformation like Tusk, and he's done parodies and superhero movies and things like that, like like parody type things. So I think this this fits. Uh, My knickknack is going to be played by Justin Long. He loves using him in these uh, type of movies. 
Um, my Dr. Nuclear is going to be played by Jason Lee. And there's different cameos and plenty of things like that. As I'll, I'll list a few of them as I go uh, because it's a Kevin Smith movie. Um, so this whole thing takes place because Nick Knack is watching TV at night and sees this rise of Dr. Nuclear. Um, and he's depressed and he, uh, this is on during Christmas and he makes a wish to Santa Claus that he wishes he could be like the superheroes that he loves and watches in the, in the movies, even if it's the most ridiculous thing in the world, just to take down this villain. Um, so Santa actually exists and sends down this cockroach that bites him and he then transforms into, uh, the roach. Uh, so the whole thing happens on Christmas day. Um, uh, it's a body horror superhero movie from Kevin Smith. You get his humor characters played by J. Well, I mean, Jason Hughes and Kevin Smith show up as uh, Jay and Silent Bob. You get a funny, like, um, so it's going to parody a lot of superhero movies. So there's going to be a moment where the roach, because he's a little smaller now because he has the power of a cockroach, hears on your left as a reference to Endgame. Um, but he, you know, he turns around but doesn't get out of the way and he gets kind of stepped on by someone running because he was just trying to pass him on the, you know, on the, on the path type of thing. So you get random humor like that, references to comic book movies that Kevin Smith would do well and put his humor into it. Um, you get uh, Haley Joel Osment in there and uh, uh, as a random, you know, cameo role, you get a henchman played by Joe Manganiello who's in Jay and Silent Bob reboot. Um, but yeah, it's a goofy, crude superhero movie with Justin Long. As, a, as the Roach trying to take down a ridiculous villain. Not a lot of people know these comics. It's not going to be um, something that you need to stick too close to. And I think that Kevin Smith can reference the popular superheroes now to bring people in and learn about this comic and just have a really fun, crazy movie. Um, and yeah, so that I, I didn't, didn't get into a ton of plot with this one, but it's it's a Kevin Smith movie. And then I just had a really quick question for you, Bobby. You, based on what you said with the, on your left, is his like, is your version of a roach? Does he become like the size of an actual cockroach, or not the size of a roach, but he's smaller? So like, it, I didn't like. Um, he's, I'd say, he's probably like four feet tall, okay. or so. Okay. But on your left is like, there's a that's what you say whenever you're passing someone on a bike or yeah, running, yeah, anyways. Yeah. So it's just kind of a funny moment like that. Um, but yeah. he, so he's a little smaller than a, than a human, but he has all these crazy superpowers. So. All right. And then Johnny, did you have a question for them or? Yeah, I have, I have a couple, I have one broad one and then I have a specific question for each person. So I'll start with my broad one. The original movie came out in 2003. And I think one of the mistakes it made was having Papa Roach do the entire soundtrack of the film. Would you guys have, um, a band do the music as like an homage to that, or would you have more traditional like superhero scores? Tristan, what do you got? I want to have a musical score, but I don't want to have it to be like an original score by a band. You know, I think it's very fun to use music from, from bands, but I think Papa Roach is very 2003. And I think having bands do like, Oh, we're going to do like, like dashboard professional or something like a Spider-Man two song. It's very like of the early two thousands. I don't think that's very modern right now. So I would, I'd like to use music in the movie, but I'm not going to use I'm not going to use like original a single band doing all the original score. That's pretty outdated. Okay, Bobby. Um, yeah, it's not going to be a band doing the whole score. It, it, this one is going to feature a lot more songs, uh, but it's not going to be like Papa Roach. But like, um, there'll there'll be fun moments with some popular songs out there. But there, a lot of it is going to be parody of superhero scores during like the big like scenes that would build it up, and then like have a funny moment that would drop the score out and things like that. 
Okay. Um, all right. Then I'll start with uh, my questions for each of you. Tristan, why did you go away from having Dr. Nuclear as your villain when that's basically like the Lex Luthor of the Roach, like to Superman? Like, yeah, I feel like you strayed away from the most popular villain. Well, I think it's, you know, we've seen something like when you see Batman movies, you've seen the Joker. You know, I like it's interesting to, like, when you did Batman Begins, it was like, it was kind of ballsy to do Scarecrow and do Ra's al Ghul instead of the Joker, instead of Penguin, instead of Riddler. I think it's interesting in these origin movies to take like a lesser known comic book villain and put them as a center centerpiece, especially if you're going to set up a, a universe at the end, you want to have like this tease for the future. You know, you didn't have Iron Man immediately fighting his arch nemesis. You know, you had that later on. And I think that's what I went for with this. Okay. And then Bobby, there was an episode of comic book men that had someone trying to sell an original signed copy of the first issue of the roach. And Kevin Smith revealed on that episode that he doesn't know that character and is not a fan of the character. Why is he a good choice for a movie that you that he's revealed he's never really been a fan of? So that would be great because, one, not a lot of people know The Roach. And especially after that episode, Kevin Smith went back and uh, started reading them and was like, you know, th- this actually has something to it. So, you know, that episode aired, but that was kind of the starting point of why he got interested in making this movie. Okay. All right. I like both those answers, Joe. You got anything for uh, him? Yeah. So my question is to both of you and I'll, uh, I guess Tristan can answer first because he more directly went against it. So the Roach in the comics was basically, is basically considered like the first gay superhero. Like his love interest was his local paper boy. And so I want to know why, like you want away from that. Like what made you decide that you're going to make him have a girlfriend? Well, I think you can give him that arc throughout the franchise. You know, you want to see him, like, discover his sexuality throughout his character development. And you have him start out with a love interest in the first movie, sure. But you can have her develop into her own character. You know, she, as we know from the comics, becomes a character of her own. And I think you can use that and have her become an independent character. Then you can have the Roach as he meets people like Bill Hader. As he meets other characters, he kind of, like, discovers himself. And I think that's more interesting. I mean, I don't know. I'm gay, so I would love to see, like, gay superheroes and stuff. But I think it would be awesome to see, like, a gay character, like, come to understand his sexuality, like, throughout a franchise. And that's why I went for him being outwardly straight in the first movie. But then, of course, you can have little, like, he has some close relationships. Like, I had his friend in the movie uh, played by by Beck Bennett. You can have that kind of little hints there that maybe he has some extra feelings for, for Bennett that he's not totally outwardly aware of yet and I little setups and then the sequel maybe you get him to be more close to some male characters all right and uh bobby yeah same question yeah so um with kevin smith he'll 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 go right at it and have him you know comment and talk to men and that like it'll be a little bit more direct he's not gonna have like a single boyfriend throughout the whole movie but uh, it'll play into jokes maybe like uh parodies of like uh Captain America and Bucky that people try to pin them together. So like there's that relationship with a friend, that type of stuff. So, you know what? Uh, Yeah. It'll be a little bit more direct. Very, very Kevin Smith to, you know, go for it. All right. All right. Like both your answers. Yeah. All right. Fight it out. Bobby, why is your movie better than Tristan's movie? I just think for something as crazy as the roach, like the, no one, like I said, no one knows the comics very well. Um, There's a very core, like small fan base. Uh, and then the um, the movie itself, the what twelve percent, like that that wasn't memorable. Not a lot of people 
uh, remember that. So I feel like with my movie, it'll, it, it plays into the cultness of the roach. It, you know, Kevin Smith is a cult hero, you know, with all his movies. And I think this is like perfect for his audience to bring this to them. Cause as soon as his audience gets something, it kind of goes all over the internet because they have allowed like internet presence, even if they're not spread around. But I just think something with such a cult um, small following is perfect for someone like Kevin Smith to take something um, and run with it. So, you know, SNL characters and that, like it's, it, your sounds fun, but you, you did say that you, you, there's a lot of comic elements that you brought into it that, um, you know, not a lot of people will know because of the small, you know, nature of the, of the roach. But, uh, personally, I just like my, I like my lead and cast better. Kate McKinnon to me is okay. Um, she hit is hit or miss. I, I like her in some roles, but she can be, I don't think she really does transform to me. I think she's over the top always. Um, so I can picture what her as a villain would be. And it's just kind of Kate McKinnon yelling. Um, Pete Davidson, I, you know, he's fine, but I, I would have, I would have rather seen someone else from SM and SNL be the lead personally for that. But yeah, I, I just think the, the roach lends itself to Kevin Smith more, uh, than your movie. Well, I think for number one, almost all of Kevin Smith's movies are really bad. Like he made Clerks that was pretty good. He made Mallrats that was like pretty good, but everything else outside of that has been like pretty trash. And like he's hardly a financial hit. Like nobody saw Tusk, nobody saw Yoga Hosiers. Like he's not going to launch a franchise with The Roach. He's going to get like his tiny loyal base of Kevin Smith followers to watch it, but it's not going to be like something that revitalizes this character that nobody knows about. You know, when you, you mentioned that in your own defense, like you said, nobody knows who the Roach is, but Kevin Smith, he's going to be the guy that launched it to the mainstream, just like he did for 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 Tusk. You know, everybody everybody saw Tusk. You know, nobody saw that movie. Nobody saw Yoga Hosiers. Nobody's seen any of Kevin Smith's movies outside of Clerks. You know, <laughs> that's like the one movie yeah. that people know from Kevin Which is Smith, what I'm going for. 30 and years that, ago. Which is why I said it's a cult thing, and he's a cult. You know, all those movies, like even Tusk has a very like passionate fan base that love that movie, especially people that listen to his podcast. It's just very small. And that's what this movie is. Cause I don't think the roach is a character that, sh that would catch on very well in the mainstream if you really went for a mainstream movie. So Kevin Smith doing this is like, it's perfect for his fan base. And it's just another movie in the repertoire of Kevin Smith that his fans would love. And that's what I'm really going for is this is for Kevin Smith and comic book fans who love Kevin Smith because he can reference them lovingly and in, in a funny interesting way um so yeah like my I, my movie in intentionally is not for mainstream and as soon as i say kevin smith you should probably get the picture of that um because kevin smith doesn't make mainstream movies anymore but i think they he has his audience and this could be kind of a one of the more fun kevin smith movies that he's made in a long time and of course, nobody knows the Roach, but people know people didn't know Iron Man. People didn't know Guardians of the Galaxy, and then they made a movie about Iron Man, and it kicked off a ginormous, like one of the biggest franchises in the entire history of of movies. You know, so I think you can take an unknown character like the Roach and turn him into like a a star. You, you know? can, but I don't think with the way you did it with the SNL cast um, and to go pretty ridiculous as far as like. People aren't, are, I don't think people would take yours seriously enough to make it into such a mainstream thing. Um, it's going to have its moments that are like clipped out probably, but that's, I didn't get the sense that it would be interesting all the way through. All right. I think I got one last question to help me decide. 
because it was kind of unclear in the movie what kind of powers would a radioactive cockroach give you? What kind of powers does your hero have? Tristan, yeah. tell me what okay. the roach is doing. Well, I think cockroaches are very well known for being like uh, they can survive a lot. Like I think it's like a folk uh, tale of like cockroaches can be the ones that survive like nuclear holocaust or something. So I think he's a good foil for like these nuclear villains. And I think you give him that like invulnerability. He's not totally invulnerable. He's sort of like Deadpool where he can take damage, but he recovers quickly. And I gave him the acid spitting power as well. So you have that kind of like he merged with this nuclear energy and he's able to like harness that energy and outwardly project it towards his enemies. So I gave him that as well. And plus the wings, you can fly. So that's you bring the cockroach and you bring the nuclear power together and you get the roach. Okay, Bobby. Yeah, so I, I mean, I had a few similar ones I was going to bring up. Like, he, obviously, he can fly. Um, I referenced like the fact that he gets kind of either run over or stepped on and kind of can rejuvenate a little bit. He's not invulnerable, but he can kind of – that's just part of being radioactive, not necessarily a cockroach. Um, and then surviving nuclear blasts um, or nuclear anything, Holocaust, that. But the one thing he has is that uh, there's a there's a cockroach in Australia that's like a, that's a giant burrowing cockroach. So he can like dig through the earth and pop up somewhere. So that's how he kind of travels most of the time to be undetected because um, it's weird to see this like four foot cockroach guy going around. So he can fly, but he can also go underground. So that's kind of one of the main things that he does for a lot of the movie. Okay. All right. I think, uh, I think I got my, my decision, Joe. Um, yeah. Same. I think I'm pretty you, locked what in. Do you think? I'm pretty locked in and okay. on who I want to go with. So you want me to get my decision now? You, you go first. Yeah. All right, so I think these are two of, like, if I had to rate the, what, 14 pitches of the night, both of these are definitely, like, top three or four pitches of the night. This is very close. And, like, your cast, talent-wise, are pretty similar. There's nothing, like, one cast doesn't really stand out as better than the other. Uh, Your plots, while different, I, I like them both like pretty evenly pretty well so it came down to the director for me and this whole this character everything about this these movies felt more like a kevin smith movie to me than a paul feig movie so I, i'm gonna go with uh uh bobby on this with the kevin smith version of the roach yeah i, I have similar i have similar feelings in terms of it came down to the director um I think Justin Long and Pete Davidson are both very good uh, picks for the Roach for different reasons. I think Nick is a character that's kind of not connected to the rest of society. And I think both of those characters in kind of different ways, Justin Long in the more Peter Parker nerdy way and Pete Davidson in the more of like, I'm a rebel. I don't really, not really friends with anyone type of way. Both kind of connect to that character in, uh, in ways I didn't really expect from either of them. Um, I love Tristan's, explanation of Colin Jost because that was spot on. Um, I don't understand Jane Silent Bob being in Bobby's movie. That kind of threw me off a little bit, but I do like that Bobby went with like the actual main villain of Dr. Nuclear for a less known franchise than Tristan going for the Batman Begins, but like anyone's going to go see a Batman movie. The fans of the Roach are going to want to see Dr. Nuclear not some lesser known character in the comic books. Um, I like the praying mantis throw in cause I'm a fan of the comics. So I like that. Uh, and I think Bill Hader's a good fit. 
And Tristan made a point with the Iron Man, but I mean, Iron Man was still Marvel. It had a way bigger fan base than uh, than the Roach ever has. To me, it came down to the director. I think Kevin Smith wasn't the best choice, but I'm more of a fan of Kevin Smith than than most people. Um, if Tristan had picked either Jerma Tacone, who did MacGruber, I would have I would have definitely been on board for his movie. Or if you went with um, uh, Donald McKinney, who did the Blue Beetle TV show, which I think is very fitting for the Roach, I think you would have won. But unfortunately. I hate Paul Feig movies and I'm not a fan of him. And I think he's going to have a much wider audience base, but I'm not a fan of any of his movies. So I'm going to have to go with Bobby's Kevin Smith version of the Roach for him to take the win. Man, finally got I can't even argue with that. Like it was definitely a close pitches in the Roach. You know, he went for similar kind of origin stories, but you both took it in different directions. And I think, I don't know. I hate Kevin Smith's movies, but like, <laughs> I guess he has a cult following and going with the, the, the iconic villain is probably a good choice. Yeah. I like, yeah, I like Clerks and Chasing Amy and Mallrat and. And that's it. Uh, Cause I he's like, done like I 10 like, more movies. Like they're all bad. The I like both the Jay and Silent Bob movies. Even the newest one I thought was pretty good. And that was closer to what Bobby was going for. Um, but like, yeah, I've never seen Tusk or Yoga Hosers, but those are movies that he just wanted to make himself. Yeah. I think he's going to make something closer to a movie I'd want to see if a studio was like, hey, make The Roach or make something based on a at least a little bit of a franchise. I didn't expect Bobby to know that Kevin Smith came out and was like actually a fan of The Roach <laughs> afterwards. So that was a good answer because it was so public that he didn't know what it was or that he cared for it. So Bobby put in his research. I think Bobby uh, for that alone kind of takes it. And, and yeah, I'm just not a, not a Paul feed guy. I think if you went with a different direction on director, I would have went with, uh, I would have went with the Tristan cause that was my tiebreaker. But yeah, I think there were a couple better choices there. All right. So All that's right. our, that's our, uh, our episode wow. for the week. I believe Joe, you got anything yeah. for him? You got anything to say? No, uh, yeah, I'm just glad we've shed some light on some of these movies that no one really remembers. But, like, I'm just happy because now it makes me want to go back and watch some of these. Like, I haven't watched how they yeah, used to be if, if anyone hasn't seen like, these I movies bet- and you go back and find them and watch them, contact us. Let us know what you what <laughs> Yeah, you please do. Them. I really but, like to know what yeah, you think like, of Red just, Rocket. That's yeah. an underrated movie. Yeah, yeah like, some of these movies were like, really hard cat. to find. Because like I wanted to watch one step at a time again before we did this because I don't really remember it that well because it's been so long since I've watched it but I couldn't find it in any streaming service or anything. So. Yeah, I just I just wouldn't watch the eyes have it. That was just terrible. Like no, that's okay. not worth like, it. Well, the, watch yeah, any other Charlie Chaplin movie. I tried to make it relevant that. to like modern day because the original is just not very good. But yeah. I don't know. It's hard to make that movie relevant when it's not even good to begin with. No, yeah, like that's a movie. Just that, to make it too relevant. That's a movie yeah. that can stay forgotten, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that one is uh, maybe maybe the worst choice of these because apparently that made you go in completely <laughs> different directions and not just make it like the comedy it should have been in the original one. Because I think the tramp blind cutting hair would have been a funny silent film, but he just made it more serious and less comedic. Yeah, yeah. but anyways, so uh, uh, Johnny, what was your p- favorite pitch of each of theirs? 
Hmm. My my favorite picture of Tristan's was um shoot, now I forget it. I gotta look back at the movies real quick. Give me a second. I really liked his Oscar-y one. Um which one was oh, that? Oh yeah, one step at a time or was one that... step at a time. Yeah. I, I think that, that was, was his best one. Yeah. Yeah, his tearjerker one. That one, um I have a connection to the movie and Tristan uh and a connection to the story. And Tristan captured that well. I really liked the direction he went with making it more about Betty um, and the relationship and making one step at a time really work for the title um, as far as a, a relationship falling apart and coming back together. Bobby, even though I think he went a little different direction on the director I would have chosen, I think How the East Was Won was his strongest pitch because I definitely – would go see that one before any of the other pitches from anyone else, because I'm a sucker for anything South Korean and Western and martial arts combined. So like Bobby's Bobby's was right up my alley on that one. I tried to make it sound a little closer than it was with my, with my pick of what I thought, but I think Bobby um, yeah. had that pretty, yeah. trying to be dramatic. One. Yeah, exactly. You got to, you know, drag it out a little bit, Bobby, you had that one basically from the start on that, on that. Yeah. I yeah, agree like, with Johnny. My, my my favorite pitch of Tristan's was uh, one step at a time. And my favorite pitch of uh, Bobby's was how the East is one. Uh, Tristan, what was your uh, favorite pitch of uh, Bobby's? I liked your red rocket pitch. I, mean, I had to go kind of like deep to attack that one. You know, I love Denny Villeneuve, but I had to be like, okay, Denny Villeneuve sucks. Like yeah. <laughs> I had to be like, I, I don't know. I how the, I'm surprised that you guys liked how the East is one. Cause I thought that was kind of a weak pitch from him, but. Uh, yeah, definitely my favorite was Red Rocket. I think you captured like the essence of that movie without like being too faithful to the original, which I think is what was my downfall a little bit. I think I think what some people fail to do on like let's say Bobby picks Denny Villeneuve, who everyone can say is a fantastic director. I think what people fail to do is be like, why the fuck would he ever make that movie? Like yeah, I tried that to was do that. my thoughts on it. Like he would never ever make that movie. And Tristan kind of went with the Denny Villeneuve can't really do a movie like that, which he's shown he can do pretty much anything except a rival like that movie. Um, yeah. But I think Tristan should have. You should have attacked that more of Denny Villeneuve is too good for this. Whereas I want to see Damien Chazelle do something completely different. I, I think those. I think sometimes that hurts the competitors because they don't go into the your pitches like too good for the movie. Yeah. I think one um, thing too, that I don't know if it necessarily with any of these pitches, but I think the one advice I'd give is like, make sure when all is said and done that your director fits the movie you're pitching. Cause there are some, I mean, it happens yeah. to me too. There's sometimes where you like, Oh, like I have an idea. I'm going to go with this director and I'm going to go with this cast. And then, you start to write your pitch and you have an idea and then you kind of go off in a different direction with your pitch. And then you kind of got to go back and make sure your director fits the movie you ultimately ended up writing. Yeah, that's, that's there, tough. There are a sure. few times where I was like, where I felt like that happened. I don't remember where it was, but there was a time where I was like, I think their pitch changed at some point and they just never went back and changed their director. And I don't remember well, it was oh, similar to might, like the, the Damien Chazelle Red Rocket one. It was like, that doesn't really fit. But to me, I'm like, he's a capable director and he's at least yeah. worked with space before. But I, I yeah. think you could have won. Even if you said Danny Boyle, I think that would have been a much better fit yeah. um, for your movie. And then same with Bobby's. Even though 
like the whole movie was clearly a parody and a Kevin Smith movie. I think Bobby could have won a completely different direction with his director on that. And same with uh, same with Tristan, even though I think he only picked Paul Feig because he's worked with SNL people and done the show before, but I didn't think he was a great fit for yeah. like a superhero comedy. Yeah. I won't lie, I forgot to put a director down for, for the roach. So as soon as you said that, I was like, um, uh, who's been on SNL? And I was like, oh, Paul Feig. And that's yeah. a loss to the point. Yeah. Quick question for mine really quick. For uh, um, for my Red Rocket, would it have changed at all if it was Alfonso Cuaron? Would that have helped or hurt me? I think it might have helped you if you went a little more ambiguous like the original one, whereas your ending I didn't think was – super ambiguous i think you could have went more sci-fi and done it alfonso Coron, and i think that would have helped you i think he was a better fit for a movie like that yeah than anything you just had it would have work shift your pitch a little bit right and that was my that was my thing because i originally had uh, alfonso Coron as my director and he's on my paper but as i was reading my pitch again i'm like this doesn't fit alfonso Coron, and switched it to denis villeneuve because it's his type of pitch think, so i was I like you know I think the best thing for that movie would have been Alex Garland. Yeah. I think making yeah. something super sci-fi, super like crazy, going into alternate dimensions, working with um, like actual scientific theories. I think Alex Garland would be a great fit for, for that pitch. And I was waiting for either one of you to do that. And neither of you went yeah. to the right. So. All right. Well, um, I know we got to wrap up, but just my, for Tristan's, um, I mean, I agree. Like my favorite of his was one step at a time, but I, I have to shout out his, um, what what was the name? Oh, well, yeah, no, his version of red rocket. I actually thought that was a lot of fun. That was like a crazy fun movie that I I would watch. So, um, I can tell Bobby's very good at arguing, but I could tell it was a little harder for Bobby to argue that I had to argue the director like that pitch. So all he went after, for the whole pitch was the director and a little bit of Crispin Glover, even though it was the rule. But in my head, I was like, well, Danny Boyle did it. So Damien Chazelle could do it. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, Johnny, uh, final thoughts. Final thoughts. This was a fun episode. Again, everyone who, uh, who ends up watching this, go find these movies. Let us know what you think of them. Um, and, uh, see if you agree with the Rotten Tomatoes score. Yeah. Uh, Tristan, final thoughts. Yeah, a really interesting episode. A lot of movies that I either forgot about or totally didn't know existed. So definitely look these up and definitely tell us what you thought of them. Uh, I'll fulfill my promise of eating the spicy chip. We've gone very long this time, but yeah. I'm going to either record a YouTube video maybe or maybe do it on the next episode I'm on. We'll figure out a way to do it, but I, I'm definitely mm-hmm. not going to back out on my, my one chip challenge related loss challenge. And also we'll release we'll a Snyder Cut. do it at the beginning of his next fight so he's at a handicap the rest of the time yeah. just chugging down milk. <laughs> yeah, I'll have like a whole gallon of milk right next to me for the whole next episode. There you oh, go. God. I like that. All right. And uh, Bobby, final thoughts? Uh, this was a lot of fun. I haven't competed in a while, and it's always fun going against Tristan. I think we have good battles. Um, yeah. I think we're – or no. Well, I think I've beaten you both, but it's been really close. I don't even remember now. But um, – yeah. Yeah, a really fun episode. I'd like to do something like this again. Cool. Uh, yeah, I'd love to compete in uh, just forgotten movies where you're kind of more free to do whatever you want because no one really remembers the original. And so all I have left to say is uh, night, y'all. <laughs>